Hey everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. My guest today is Professor Justin Marceau. Justin is a constitutional and criminal law professor at the University of Denver Law School, and a lot of you know that I've had some entanglements of the legal system, and I don't think there's anyone better in, in the country, frankly, to talk about these issues with than Justin Marceau. Justin graduated from Harvard Law School, and unlike a lot of his peers, decided to do something that was a little out of the ordinary, focus on animals. And since then, he's done some of the most important legal work in the animal rights movement's history, including litigating and challenging the ag-gag laws that have been passed across the country. These laws have criminalized the mere act of taking a photograph inside of a factory farm. Um, He's successfully struck down many of these laws with these lawsuits. But he also has just a profoundly interesting philosophy on punishment and retribution and justice that I think is really worth paying attention to, especially in a time where so many are so focused on trying to achieve retribution against those we think are behaving badly. Justin's also got a fascinating personal biography, though, that I think helps us understand and helps me understand how he became the person he is. Um, He grew up on a farm in Montana, (laughs) a fairly conservative place uh, in this country, and he had a profoundly disturbing experience as a student in the Air Force Academy. He wanted to be a pilot, and he ended up becoming an animal rights advocate. But you really should just listen to the podcast. Uh, and by the way, also check out his book, Beyond Cages, which is a fascinating account of criminal justice and animal rights, and also his new book that should be coming out soon, Lloyd Grun. But without further ado, here's Justin Marcel. Justin. Great to see you, Wayne. It's been a while. No, absolutely in person. We've only done, or we published one in-person podcast. We're all vaccinated and got our negative tests. So I'm really excited to be here. And um, your work has been incredibly transformative for the animal rights movement. But I think it also has immense implications for the broader movements for social justice that are animating the United States today. And so I'd like to get into that. But I think one of the central theses of your work is this notion that while a lot of us want to see people put in prison or punished for various egregious acts of cruelty, of criminality, whether it's criminal animal abuse, sexual assault, police brutality, there are some long-term implications of that approach that all of us need to be concerned about. So tell me a little bit about just the broader paradigm that you're working with in, in evaluating whether it's a good thing to put people in prison, even bad people. Right. I mean, well, there is a reason that we say revenge is sweet, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it literally is in the sense that the brain reacts to it. Like if, if you think about somebody who has wronged you or maybe wronged an animal and you love animals uh, and you think about getting back at them, um, your brain has a chemical reaction that, that is like eating sugar. It, uh-huh. it, it, it's positive, right? And so it's hardly surprising, not even worth faulting anyone for thinking like, oh my gosh, I just read this story. I mean, just yesterday, there's a story of police officers um, breaking into someone's house in the Washington Post um, and, and killing a dog in front of them. And it's just a horrible story. When I read that, right, my visceral reaction is, oh my gosh, like somebody needs to be punished for this, right? And, yeah. and in this case, it's, it's a person in, in authority, right? It's, it was three police officers. Um, but the, the reality is that it's, it's always been more complicated than that. And increasingly in the sort of era of George Floyd, we, we, it, it has more public salience, but it's always been more complicated, right? Deterrence studies, what are we getting from this? And so one of the things that I try to ask is just, okay, um, what do we care about as a movement? What do we care about when we think about social change? Do we care about the 
um, you know, the, the way we are perceived. So at the most crass instrumental level, do we care that the Black Lives Matter folks are going to look at us and be like, oh, those are the, those are the white supremacist uh, mm -hmm. animal people over there in that corner? Do we care at a, at a sort of more, um, you know, integrated level how we are integrating or how we are communicating with our, our supporters and with our people, right? I mean, do we care that their communities are over-policed? Do we care that they experience policing and prosecution different than most of us who come, like myself, from a, from a somewhat privileged background? Um, and I think that's the second question. And then third, what do we hope to obtain from it, right? So there's sort of this, this instrumental question of like, do we want to alienate ourselves? Then there's this question of like, what does it mean to be an inclusive movement? And then there's this question of what are our goals, right? Do we think it's going to bring structural reform? Are the slaughterhouses going to slow down? Are they, are they going to do every 15 seconds instead of every 12 seconds if we, if we prosecute um, the dog abuser? Uh, or is animal abuse and neglect of companion animals going to go down? Like, have we yeah. ever studied that? Do we have any reason to believe that we are helping animals? Right? It's not that I think the people who do it should um, be celebrated or even evade opprobrium. Right? I mean, these are terrible acts, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we could. You can, Aya Gruber writes about it in the context of feminist violence. Right? I mean, rape, sexual assault, um, domestic violence. Right? And and the question that Aya Gruber, po Aya Gruber poses for us all is: Do you think we are changing the police and prosecutors more, or they're changing us more when we invest in them? Like, do you think that the police officers who have mandatory arrest procedures in domestic violence, do you think they've suddenly become feminists? Or do you think they're using the same hammer that they've always used? And when it comes to um, sort of sexist jokes and the like at night, it's going to continue. And she says, there's no question what's happened, right? Instead, the, the, the feminist movement has become more carceral, but the, the, the carceral movement hasn't become more feminist, mm -hmm. right? And so it's sort of these, like, what are we getting? And what do we want to get, right? Is it, just a, is it just a fundraising kind of pitch, or is there something behind it? And by carceral, you mean taking an approach that focuses on basically putting people in prison to deter future bad acts that... Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, Lori Gruen and I are working on some stuff right now that looks at what we think carceral means. I mean, at a, at a base level, carceral certainly means incarceration, having yeah. to do with incarceration. We think that carceral logics are broader than that, and sort of in a in a capitalist or neoliberal framework of thinking about like rights and wrongs, and blacks and whites, and punishment and accountability. Um, and so, I don't think either of us. I won't speak for Lori, but I don't think either of us are convinced that. A, you know, an abolitionist perspective means no one is ever confined, sure. nor do we think that probation is non-carceral, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a bit more complicated okay. than that. But. Interesting. I want to dive into that more, but let's actually back up because I didn't provide a lot of context. <laughs> For those of you who, who don't know, Justin Marceau is a, is a professor of law at the University of Denver. He's been counsel in multiple ag guy cases representing criminal defendants and, and activists who are facing legal charges for exposing cruelty at factory farms. He's also been a lawyer uh, for quite some time in a time where I think the movements for social justice have interestingly both become more concerned about mass incarceration, but also used a lot of these same tools that right. nominally were opposed to, like right. criminal punishment, right. on our adversaries in, in these various forms of systemic abuse, whether it's animal cruelty, domestic violence, sexual assault, or police brutality. Hate crimes, um, yeah. So that's kind of your background. But there's also a background in the animal rights movement, which right. is for most of the last few decades, when you thought about animal law and when you thought about how do we stop cruelty to animals, a lot of the focus, as you write in your book, Beyond Cages, was just you put people in jail, right? You mm -hmm. convict people. Right. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that backdrop and, and how it came about? Because, 
you know, I mean, the animal rights movement could have taken a lot of different approaches to animal law. It could have taken yeah. a legislative approach, a grassroots community organizing approach. It could, it could have taken an approach like the one Steve Wise is currently yeah. taking, which is focusing on Personal. affirmative rights for animals instead of punishment for for people violate, you know, various aspects of their well-being or their rights. Right. But the approach that's been dominating the movement for decades has been let's go after the people who abuse the animal. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I mean, I think the history here is complicated and I'm reluctant to flatten it to sort of like one narrative. But I, I think, you know, I mean, or to put it differently, there are lots of lawyers out there, right? Probably animal activists and lawyers who are listening and saying, well, I, I don't do anything carceral. Uh-huh. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I, either they feel like they have clean hands or that it's sort of, you know, a, a critique misses the mark. And what I would say is, you know, your characterization is the way that I see it, right? I mean, I was receiving, um, for as long as I've been associated with the movement, right, for, for going on, you know, a decade and a half, you know, the abuse, of, uh, abuse an animal, go to jail, bumper stickers. Mm-hmm. Um, while I've been working on a task force with the governor of Colorado, I received a petition to petition the governor, right, from a national group saying we need stronger laws in Colorado. It, it is absolutely pervasive. And the shift, right, I mean, I'm somebody who thinks there has to be a multiplicity of approaches, right? It's a bit of um, probably self-justification, but I think you have to have some law professors, you have to have some Wayne's, you have to have some PETA's. You, have, you mean, you, you need a, a multiplicity in the ecosystem. And so I'm pretty tolerant of almost all approaches, but the criminal turn, I really think, doesn't get us anything and is isolating. And, and you know, the story of how it came to be so prevalent... I mean, I think there's two two parts to that. Um, one is kind of the modern um, explanation, which is which is what we're told and, and and kind of what appears in the animal law textbook, which is this is the mainstreaming of the movement, right? Mm. Um, some groups, um, because I understand DXE's you know agenda, is to to focus on a particular flank of the movement. The um, agenda of some of the big animal law players was let's make us all look a little more mainstream. Like let's let's de-radicalize. Mm-hmm. And if we de-radicalize, and, and so part of that was, uh, and this is something we could talk about later too, stopping the representation of activists who do direct action. So part of it was we don't want to be associated with those people because they look kind of crazy and they're they're criminals, right? Mm-hmm. We define them as criminals, so we should distance ourselves from them. And the other part was, but if we play the other side of the criminal sphere and we join hands with the prosecutors, who can object to that, right? I mean, a white shoot prosecutor, everybody trusts the prosecutor. And so there was this sort of effort to mainstream the movement and make it look like there was nothing, nothing dangerous here when you like animals. But the problem is there isn't anything dangerous. There's nothing that challenges people and they could feel good about themselves watching that a guy got five years for abusing his cat and then while they're sitting there eating their cheeseburger, right? So there was this sort of complacency that I think grew out of it. Well-intentioned, right? I mean, it was, it was, it was lots of legislative efforts, litigation efforts that had failed and they said, we need to look more mainstream. But if you go even further back, um, there's a historian named Paula Tarankow and um, she, uh, I think she's putting it into book form, but her research was of local humane societies in the 19th century. It's fascinating because, you know, a story that we've often told ourselves in the movement and that I believed, frankly, just, you know, took it on face value, that, that animal crimes were different. Like we, we say, well, the war on drugs, that was racist. But the war on animal crime was, was, was born out of a sincere desire to stop seeing animals hurt. And of course, it's partially true. And it's partially true of the war on drugs, right? There were mm-hmm. probably some good motives. There's always mixed motives. It's never binary. But the reality of what Paula Tranko has shown um, by studying some of the local humane societies is that prior, in the antebellum era, prior to the Civil War, we largely thought 
that, you know, slavery codes allowed people to be executed for animal abuse. Um, but we largely thought as an as a, as a animal community that we could teach people. We could, we could sort of do, you know, teach them to have compassion for animals, that it was kind of the carrot idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the abolition of slavery, we turned to the stick. Huh. And we said, uh, and so what she's done is documented a number of local humane society pamphlets and writings at the time where they said, you know, the truth is, um, these liberated former slaves, they've just been so animalized, they're never going to know how to treat animals well. Wow. And so then we went to incarceration. Uh, it's not a coincidence that it became more palatable to us to incarcerate in a period of time when um, there was this new population that was living among us. Right? And they were also impoverished, had no reparations. And so the sort of prosecutions were often horse. Right? It was these people were buying horses at auctions that were... Um, in really bad shape to sort of mm-hmm. do their work, right? Either in fields or pulling soot carts or various things. Um, and then there was prosecutions of those. Yeah. And so, so you know, th- of course, that's not even the whole story either, right? And it doesn't mean sure. that's every locality. But there is, there's a sort of story one could tell that looks an awful lot like the problematic crimes, you know, the sort of Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow type era that we could tell that we don't tell about animal crimes. And there's also this mainstreaming. Uh, ideology. And I think both are problematic, um, yeah. right? And things that we haven't thought about. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in that story about horses in the kind of post Civil War era, it, it's not like it ended then. Because right. you see today, I mean, I'm being prosecuted right now for rescuing some dogs from Ridgeland, uh, one of the largest breeding and research facilities in the nation that had 5,000 dogs in conditions that were worse than, frankly, any dog fighting ring I've ever seen. But we have celebrated as a movement, and our society has celebrated incarcerating people. Frankly, we're doing bad things, like Michael Vick. While Ridgeland is doing far worse things to thousands and thousands more dogs. And not only do they not prosecute them, despite the fact that we presented them with evidence of clear animal cruelty. Because one of the things about Ridgeland is in Wisconsin, while there's an exemption for experimentation, it doesn't apply to breeding. Right. So we've got a pretty compelling argument. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of prosecutors behind us on this saying, hey, this company itself. But because yeah. Ridgeland is a company that is very powerful, Covance is in the same county. They do a lot of experimentation on dugs, which is, again, a very powerful corporation, yeah. not run by marginalized, poor people, black people. It's extremely wealthy white people right. at places like the University of Wisconsin and Covance. Right. And so they're doing things like injecting dogs of laundry detergent to the point they vomit blood and die and they're not being prosecuted well someone who's in a poor neighborhood causing dogs to fight which it should be stopped and it shouldn't be allowed to happen everyone agrees no one's saying michael vick was doing something that was even okay right but there's something profoundly problematic about that disparate treatment and until we square that and say hey you know why are we going so hard after michael vick and you know all these people in power not going after the people who actually are doing worse things yeah it, it, it's not just about the animals at that point. It's, well, you, it is about race. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it's about race and it's about structural and systemic accountability, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, one of the things we can come back to if we want to, I abhor prosecution in general, but I strongly favor at this point in time corporate prosecutions, right? Like I think that corporate prosecutions could be game changers in this movement. But yeah. what I wanted to say is, you know, a few years ago, and can you just say what what you mean by corporate prosecution yeah, so, for someone who doesn't understand? Yeah, what the sorry, difference like is between holding the facility, right? Purdue is producing chickens, or a lab that's doing something, like holding the persons who run the lab potentially accountable, fine, and the corporate entity itself, right? This corporation that we're told in Hobby Lobby can have a religion, can have all these things, holding them criminally accountable. <laughs> 
accountable, right? I mean, they, I mean, because the shareholders at the bottom, at the end of the day, right? They can say they care about their animals, but they are there for the bottom line. And mm-hmm. if the bottom line is that the that felony liability is coming down on these corporations, things are going to change, yep. right? And and so I am, you know, like there is a problem with relying on criminal law. Even I mean, as we can talk about, like my data and my research suggests that we are getting no bang for our buck. Nothing other than sort of like placating and making people feel good about themselves. Um, but even if we were getting some nominal deterrence value, say that in the lowest income neighborhood here in Denver, um, you know, one less dog was neglected a year, which would be a good thing uh, if that was happening for all the money we were spending on, on a, you know, abuse and neglect laws. Even if that was true, what we would be neglecting and overlooking is the fact that um, those prosecutions are actually hiding from the public the exemptions for research, mm-hmm. the exemptions for factory farming, and all these other things. They, they, they sort of just disappear from, from the line of sight, right? We don't, yeah. we don't think about them. And I am all for sort of finding ways to, fi- to creatively bring corporate prosecutions. I think if we prosecute, you know, the bad cop, the bad corporation, eventually the criminal law will always find its way to the marginalized communities. It will always have disparate impact on them. And so I worry about that. But I, at this stage, right, we can only do what we can do. Corporate prosecutions, entity liability, um, you know, white collar prosecutions should be happening. It's an yeah. embarrassment that it's not happening, frankly. But what I was going to say, just building on the, the comment you made, I think that you really hit the nail on the head in saying like, there is a problem here in, in thinking about, you know, sort of structural versus individual acts. Mm-hmm. And so a few years ago, the movement invested heavily, and you may remember this, in having the FBI track animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was yeah. a big priority. And so, you know, I, you know, to be honest, I wasn't involved in that. I didn't really know what we would get from it, but it was, it was, it was one of these things that was a big claimed victory. And so, you know, beginning a few years ago, I think it was 2017 was the first year we had data. Um, we started getting data about, you know, where do animal crimes occur? How do they occur? And according to the FBI tracking. And one of the things that's interesting is despite all the fanfare around getting the FBI to track this, you haven't seen, I'm going to publish some stuff on it very soon. You haven't seen what, what we've learned from that data. And mm. one of the things that we've learned is that persons of color are dramatically overrepresented in the national numbers of animal prosecutions. No groups that we're celebrating the putting out of these numbers is talking about that. Like they're overrepresented in ways that look like the crimes that are traditionally associated with, uh, you know, racialized criminal justice, drug crimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, public unrest, public intoxication. Like these types of crimes are not radically out of the orbit of the arrest rates for uh, animal crime by marginalized communities. Now, the response that I sometimes get, right? In fact, just recently, I workshopped a version of this paper, and a well-respected animal law commentator said, yeah, but what if those people just commit the crimes more? Mm-hmm. Which is always the problem, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Sasha Nadapoff at Harvard and everyone, there's always a problem when you're looking at the end game of a system because you, you say, okay, this is how many people were arrested. Mm-hmm. So does that mean they committed more crimes or does it mean the police were racist? What, what was going on that caused them to, to be more in the system? It's, it's, a, it's usually an unanswerable question. But... My response is always, so what if that was true? What mm-hmm. if there was more, and by the way, there's no data to suggest this, but what if, what if there were more um, cases of animal cruelty or neglect by persons of color? What if that was true? It's just the fact that that's how we have defined the crime of animal cruelty, right? It, it betrays an understanding of the fact that the criminal law is a construct, right? We have defined criminal law to exempt corporations. We have defined criminal law to let the researchers and everyone else off. Mm-hmm. We might think that's a good call. Or we might think it's a bad call. I think it's a terrible call. Yeah. But what we can't say is, well, your data just shows then that maybe it's the case, maybe, 
that black people are abusing dogs more than others? And I would say no, right? It's your Michael Vick example. What that says is how we've defined it ends up in more arrests. And I think that's so important for people to understand. It's, it's like we have written this law, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it honestly feels like a little bit of a head trip when you think about this. And when you actually compare the numbers, I mean, I, I agree with the commentator. Let's look at the numbers. Let's look at right. the stats. And I think the more you look at the stats, I mean, animal advocates often make the comparison between factory farms and dogs too. Right. Obviously those numbers are skewed. But again, even if you're just concerned with dogs, even if you're not someone who thinks a chicken deserves the same consideration as a dog, why is there such a dramatic discrepancy in the way dogs in labs are treated versus the way dogs in a dog fighting ring are treated? And it, it absolutely yeah. has to do with the racialized kind of criminal justice approach yeah. we've taken in this country for hundreds of years, you know, since right. this country's inception. And racialized and profit-driven. And profit-driven, right? I mean, absolutely. If, if, if we were to introduce two bills, and I, I can speak to this in some experience in car, one bill is the sort of, you know, either increase the felony penalties for abuse, as it's currently defined in Colorado today, and another is to ban puppy mills, which is yeah. a bill we tried to run just two years ago. Banning puppy mills in this state is wildly controversial. Huh. Right? A blue state, progressive legislature, Senate and House, Banning puppy mills couldn't get through. Yeah. But if you wanted to add felony penalties, people would always say, well, should we add more to this? Or should we have an advocate in court talking about how a cat suffered at the sentencing hearing? Those sort of things are, are easily you know, uh, palatable to the legislatures and to the public. You want to just ban puppy mills? No. Yeah. Right? So, we, so we really are obscuring, even if you only cared about dogs and cats, we're, we're sort of like obscuring the mass amount of suffering for, for a few token gestures. Yeah. It's a weird thing. I've done legislative campaigns for the last 15 years. The first campaign I ever worked on was the foie gras campaign in Chicago mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s, which honestly, I don't, I don't think the activists even deserve a huge amount of credit for it. It's, it was, the activists deserve credit in getting to the point culturally and socially that Joe Moore felt like he could do it. But it was really Joe Moore who decided, this is an alderman in Chicago, with um, a buddy of his, Jana Cole, you know, who's an animal activist in LA now, but used to be in Chicago, who just decided to do it. But one of the things that struck me, even at the local level, anytime you talk to a legislator about some proposed change in the law, they always want to hear about the impact on jobs and money. Like, how is this going to affect tax revenue? How is this going to affect you know, jobs in, in the city? How is this going to affect, you know, the economics of the city? Even though all of us in, in this nation understand that there are values that are more important than just economic growth and money. Right. And there, there are things that are more important than how much money is in our bank account. For example, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the people we care about. And, right. and that's a more fundamental critique of our political system. But the animal movement definitely runs into that hardcore because right. of the fact these animals are commodities. Right. And, and so there's, there's an investment. There's a rate of return on the capital that every single one of these businesses is expecting. And, and for whatever reason, our legislators are very responsive to that concern and often not as responsive to concerns about things like animal cruelty or even public health. But I, wanna, I said I wanted to walk back, and we've, we've talked a little about the history of the animal rights movement and how the animal rights movement got to the state, which is, I think, changing yeah. as, as our society is changing because you know, we've seen social shifts too, notwithstanding the focus of some social justice movements recently on incarcerating particular individuals. And, and, mm-hmm. and I'm actually kind of interested in your take on a case like George Floyd and, yeah. and Derek Chauvin. But, and, but I'm actually really curious about your personal story too mm-hmm. and why you decided to become a lawyer and whether your views on this issue came from your views on criminal justice or was it something where you came in the animal movement and you saw 
that it seemed like we were picking on the powerless mm -hmm. <laughs> and not on the powerful and thought, hey, we need to recalibrate that. So yeah. walk me back to your beginnings. I mean, how did you right. even decide to become a lawyer? Well, it's interesting. I had originally, I mean, my initial plan um, as, a, as a boy growing up in Montana was to be in the Air Force and be a, uh, a pilot. Really? And I went to the uh, Air Force Academy <laughs> of, all, of all places. I had and, no idea. Yeah. How did I not know this about well, you? Well, it's, uh, it's not always uh, discussed, which is an odd place. Right? <laughs> Very, it's, it's highly uh, you know, driven by conformity and yeah. listening from the top down, which is, for those who know me, not a, not a great trait of mine. Um, <laughs> and I was in it. Um, and then I had sinus surgery uh, the summer after my second year, and I could, um, I was going to be able to get a waiver to be commissioned, but I could no longer be a pilot. And they said, uh, well, you can either leave now or stay and, I don't know, be cross-commissioned to the Marines. Okay. Or, and you, know, and very you have short, to be a pilot in the Air Force Academy. You can't I just mean, be an officer. No, I could have been an officer. I could have, I could have had some sort of, you know, waiver. I don't know, logistics okay. or something to be at a, you But know, that defeat beat the point it, it of going wild, to the Air Force. Right. Exactly. You, you wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a pilot. It's the only thing I wanted to be. And then, uh, so on kind of a whim, I, I just applied to two schools, Boston College and Georgetown. I'd been raised Catholic, huh. um, had never been to Boston, so decided to go to Boston and, that's, and studied philosophy there. And did my undergraduate then at, at BC and became interested in, and actually while I was at BC, became just fascinated by this idea of why do we punish and what are we hoping to get out of it. Huh. Um, still had not really any animals on the radar. And then, yeah, in my last year of law school at, at uh, Harvard Law School. Wait, wait, can you explain to me how this shift happens? Because you grew up in Montana in a Catholic family. That yeah. sounds pretty conservative to me. I mean, I don't know Montana very well and I don't know Catholicism, <laughs> but what I do know about them suggests both of them are pretty authoritarian. You go to among the most, maybe the single most authoritarian school in the nation. I mean, along yeah. with West Point, there's these three yeah. elite, right. like the Navy, uh, the Army, and the, yeah, and the, the Air, Air Force, Force. All yeah. of these elite academies where, I mean, you're not, you wake up at 5 a.m., you yeah. can't even look at your, yeah, room your officers the wrong way. Yeah, you got to yeah. make your yeah. bed. And yeah, everything's, yeah. everything's driven by rules and compliance of authority yes. and listening to people like prosecutors, right? These are the people telling you, this is what you have to do. Exactly. And so there's, you, you kind of missed... <laughs> At least for me, there's a missing part of the story that I'm trying right. to figure out. So what is it in Boston that makes you think, oh, actually, I'm going to support people break the law and face all these felonies that are trying to, I trying mean, to I, burn the no, system? I, I, I shouldn't I say mean, burn I, the system. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question. And it's one, you know, I mean, I have not uh, probably done sufficient introspection. But I mean, when I was leaving the Air Force Academy, I was so tired of marching tours for my boots not being shiny enough huh. or for, you know, feeling I was, I was, you know, I was always a pretty good kid. I didn't get into a lot of trouble with, you know, a couple of, I was, I was, you know, was playing around at the margins, but did well in high school and, you know, yeah, was, 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 was a rule, rule follower. And I think that the Air Force Academy kind of pushed me to my limit where I said I have to start asking a lot of questions. So, I mean, I, I don't regret being there at all. Uh, still some of my best friends went there and it's, it's, a, huh. it's a crazy and shocking um, place in many ways. But I, I, when I left, I was like, oh my gosh, I am going to do the opposite so of everything. That, that I thought wow. they could, you know, and there, there was a moment at the Air Force Academy, actually, um, that, that really drove this home for me. We were watching, uh, we had, you had to take military history classes, a lot of military history classes. And I took a military history class. Again, no connection to animals, but I always had a sense of empathy. My yeah. family had a farm. I always felt bad for the animals. And, you know, and my dad had asked me to hunt, and I had kind of said, well, I don't think I want to hunt. But it wasn't like I, I, don't, I would never kill an animal. Yeah. It's just like I said, oh, I'm too busy. busy yeah. and I would find excuses to not do it. And at the Air Force Academy, there was this day where the, the officer teaching this military history class left the room, and there was a video on about 
um, a massacre in Vietnam by U.S. soldiers. We were, the, the point was supposed to to be that we would recognize that even great American soldiers could sometimes do wrong. Uh -huh. um, and there were survivors, right, like a child who had seen her family massacred. Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing because in this room of like, you know, 18 to 20-year-old, soon-to-be military officers, like when the, when the classroom professor, the officer left the room, they all started yelling racial slurs at, wow. the, at the TV and, you know, faulting them and saying, you, you know, I'm not even going to repeat the, the sure. slurs, but saying all of these things. And I remember like looking around the room being like, oh my gosh, like yeah. this is, this is nuts. And I'm not saying that's representative of the military academies. I mean, I, I think they've done a lot to change and this is one class, but I remember sitting there thinking, holy cow. And like, there is no one here to challenge. Like they are so indoctrinated with like the American flag could sure. do no wrong that when this woman is talking on a documentary about what happened, they're screaming, you know, yeah. epithets at her. So, so that kind of got to me. And, and then that there was some awful stuff. Oh, I mean, the stuff we did oh, in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, go back and look at some yes. of the records, but just like napalming yes. entire villages and just indiscriminately civilians uh, that the stuff we've done in Afghanistan and Iraq is pretty bad, but right, this comparatively, was... you know, yeah, it's... I mean, this was, this was a, this, and it was gruesome. Yeah. So I, so I have two questions about that experience. One is what do you think led to those folks feeling such little empathy for the, the victims yeah. of these crimes? I mean, there were crimes against humanity. There were war yeah. crimes committed by the United States for sure. I think the U S military's even conceded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We did some things that were war crimes. And second, why do you think you didn't feel the same way? What was it about you and your upbringing? Because everything you've told me about your upbringing mm -hmm. suggests you would have been one of the same people just kind of going along. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, those are both really hard questions. I mean, I think I will say uh, on my end, uh, my parents, you know, yeah, they grew up in Montana and they raised me in Montana. I spent my whole childhood in Montana and went to, to church every weekend. Um, huh. And, you know, there was a farm. But... Um, they were and have always been very supportive and open and compassionate people. Um, and so they were always interested. You know, I mean, I was early in life against the death penalty. And I think, you know, they were probably really? for it, but they were curious. You know, I mean, my mom was probably one of the first people, I mean, in the state, honestly, to say like, you know, LGBT stuff. I mean, it seems like their their business. Um, they were just kind of open to those conversations. And they still are, right? I mean, like when, when uh, I go home with my kids, um, you know, they, they sort of clear out everything and we have like all vegan meals and they're very, they're very supportive. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, you don't get it all, but they, so they, they were, they, they sort of raised me in a way that was tolerance and, you know, feel compassion. And, you know, so, so I, so I, so I credit them with a lot of that, you know, the Air Force Academy, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I look back on those days and I, I still wonder, I mean, I, when I, th when I read things about the military industrial complex and the military, and even then, you know, to, to factory farms, like structural violence and factory farms, like, I understand how people can be desensitized to it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there they were trained to just, like, there is a higher order. There's a higher law. It is your country. It is the flag, right? I mean, these people yeah. who become so incensed if they imagine somebody spitting on a flag or something, right? Um, like, the, they, they were there, right? And this, this, mm -hmm. this, there was, I mean, this was actually, yeah, I think, an admission of war crimes. And the, the documentary was noting that, you know, the, you know, however many years later, some people from the U.S. government were meeting with some people from Vietnam and sort of making this reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was that was the context in which people were like, "Screw them!" You know, this is yeah. you know, down with them because we were so hyped up, right? I mean, it was all about like yeah. country. We were all like just sort of taught that you know, this is you were you were there for the higher good. And I think we're all everyone was like on edge to just sort of be like sure. ready to to burst, you know. And I think that that's uh, it's just a lesson in how 
groupthink works, right? I mean, if you're taught as a child that eating animals is normal, it's kind of a hard thing to overcome, right? I mean, my son's friend, not that long ago, we were getting burritos and he said, I would like the chicken burrito. And I was like, oh, we're not getting chicken burrito. And he said, and my son Moses said to him, you know, that's dead chicken. And his, and his friend said to him, yeah, but my dad told me the chickens that are in the burritos are already dead. <laughs> and, you know, even my, you know, at that time, seven-year-old son was like, well, yeah, yeah they're dead because they kill them for your burrito. Yeah. But, you know, there was this sort of like, like he had, the, the kid's father had to offer an explanation, right? Yeah. Which was, yeah, yeah, these are chickens, but they're already dead, yeah. right? You yeah. didn't kill it. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of that in every piece. Right? So this kid who is loving, loves animals, even had had the thought, do we eat? animals yeah. that we see do we eat this had been told something right like no no, no these ones are dead yeah uh, i mean and i think there's that kind of like half explanation that then you know it just builds into custom it builds into practice yeah so that, that makes a lot of sense to me and you see that in a lot of other contexts where right. you know you, you you wrote to me that timothy potrot's book has influenced you and yeah there's something about the segregation right the the division of labor that the fact that everyone can say yes. i'm not the one who delivered the killing blow. And that sounds like what this kid was <laughs> so doing. True. It was a very sophisticated so form of deflection, just yeah. saying, oh, I didn't kill the chicken. And, and what he doesn't realize is that everyone in the slaughterhouse feels the same way because the person who's running the chicken through the electrical bath feels like, right. oh, you know, they're just getting stunned. And the person who's slitting their throat is saying, oh, they were already stunned, so they're basically already dead. And everybody kind of feels that way. And no one wants to take responsibility. And honestly, to some degree, there's some truth to that because it yeah. is a systemic problem. It's a structural exactly. problem that all of us are participating in in small ways, including vegans. You know, yeah, as absolutely. a vegan, I pay my taxes and there are tens of billions of dollars in subsidies for animal agriculture that goes to slaughtering animals. So I'm not economically segregated from right. the violence against animals on the planet that unfolds. But what's interesting to me about the story you told me was it wasn't just deflection. They weren't just saying, oh, that was a long time ago and the United States government has done a lot right. better. And, you know, it was outright hostility. Right. And... This is something that I actually personally experienced a lot, not just as an Asian person, but mm-hmm. as, an, as an activist you know, in the animal rights movement. The amount of hostility towards Chinese people is just – it's over the top. Yeah. Like, and not just you know, like, oh, Chinese people commit more acts of cruelty than white people. It's like, let's nuke them all. Wow. You know, and, and there's yeah. like this famous quote by Morrissey. Who again? I love yes. Morrissey. He's a great guy. And I even like his music. Like, Dismiss, amazing. Morrissey, amazing guy. And I don't want anyone to say after this, oh my gosh, Wayne called Morrissey out and wants him canceled. I don't want him canceled. Like no. he has allowed grassroots activists at table at his shows. He's like legit mm-hmm. yeah. one of these wealthy, famous people who cares about people yeah. on the front lines. He's a deeply empathetic person who cares about people and animals that are marginalized. He also called Chinese people a subspecies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. And you can kind of get it because what you were saying earlier about that retributive instinct. Right. And yeah, I blogged about this once. Like, I even felt this way early in my ab- advocacy. I would watch video footage of like dogs being totally. tortured, and I would say to myself, "Is there something wrong with us?" Right, right, because it, it's something that we're taught. And so, but the the last example I wanted to give is um, John McCain, who right now is being lionized by the left because he stood up to Donald Trump, and everyone says he's great. You're laughing because right. you and I probably agree that he, you know he had a little bit of a history on, for example, national security issues that wasn't best, but. He was also very famous for, and you probably don't remember this because it was a long time ago and also because you're not Asian, so it probably wasn't as big in your community. In the 2008 presidential campaign, he was known for calling Asian people gooks openly and not apologizing for it and just saying, oh, I don't mean all the Asian people. I just mean, and again, you you can understand why he's taking that sort of hateful approach because this is a guy who legitimately was tortured. In Vietnam. Right. Not that we didn't torture people. I mean, we burned people alive. We did a lot of things. 
And so, you know, that mentality, and I, and, and I get it a lot more in the context of a war. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get it as much in the context of animals. Right. But it's, there's something about human nature that's revealed in these situations of conflict, right, that yeah. brings out the worst in us, where it's, it's not just that we're deflecting and avoiding accountability for the things we do. It's that we're actively hostile yeah. and, and want to hurt the people we've already hurt even more right. and get this joy out of it. And that, that's like a very dark part of human nature that I'm not sure how we correct. Yeah. But it's a little scary that it manifested in the context of this documentary in the Air Force. Do you think the Air Force would still allow that sort of behavior? Or do you think this is something well, that mean, probably wouldn't have been allowed? No, I don't. Th- I mean, I think, that, no, I think that there's a reason that it happened even when the, the you know, professor walked out of the classroom, right? Okay. I mean, so, yeah. it, it, there so was a wouldn't bit have of a Lord of the Flies movement. No, it was yeah. not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it's, it's sort of the, you know, it's a product of how we bring people up and who, who finds themselves in this moment, right? Very nationalist, um, very, you know, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. kind of testosterone to, to be blunt, you know, and this is just, <laughs> just sort of, yeah, I mean, um, you know, phrases like John McCain used just seem to like roll off the, the tongue, right? And I yeah. think that's, I think that's, um, but no, I don't think the, I mean, while I was there, I didn't see the Air Force Academy. It, it's more like what happens behind closed doors. It's more sure. that kind of thing. And, the, you know, the, the top down could have done more to prevent it, right? But it's not that they were um, no. condoning it. What did, how did you respond you know, I don't want to shame you because yeah, this no, is a long I, time. I it's totally okay no, if you didn't I mean, say anything because it's hard. It's really hard to. I, you know, I, I, I honestly, I mean, this, this was in, um, I think it was 1999. I, I have a really clear memory of sitting in the room. They had turned off the lights and it was dark. I don't have a clear memory of what happened other than like the sort of like my reaction. Like I was in disbelief. It was one of those moments where you sort of feel yourself outside your body, like looking yeah. around being like, oh my gosh, like what's happening right now? You know, and, I, and I'm, I actually teach some cases in criminal law about, you know, really terrible things where there are bystanders and they mm-hmm. don't do anything. And I don't, I don't know if I had that effect. Like I was, I was, I was sort of frozen. I remember talking to one of my classmates later about like, holy cow. And, and we both were like, yeah, I mean, there's some crazy people. Um, but, you know, it was, it was just like, I mean, there's so many things happening at any given moment. And yeah, no, but nothing... Um, I didn't say anything to the professor. I didn't do anything. I mean, it's not a it's not a, a moment I'm proud of, but it was just one of those things. I don't, I don't even know if I've ever told that story. But it's just sort of like I was sitting there thinking, "Wow, like this is yeah. I, I am in the middle of like the, you know the devolution of human the human species right now. I'm experiencing yeah, yeah. it." Did um, you feel like you fit in at the Air Force at the time? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I was trying. I could do it. I did well there. Um, there's this thing, you, in addition to a GPA, you get an MPA, a military yeah. performance afternoon. I heard about this. And, uh, one semester I had a 4.0 MPA, so, uh-huh. which, which, which requires, you know, like just basically like physical for, fitness and all these other things. Well, too, no, there's right? a no? separate, you know, p- okay. fitness test. I mean, this is like the quality of the creases on your shirt, oh, the, nice. uh, you know, all of your military <laughs> knowledge. Uh, so I think I was, I was fine at it, but you know, I would frequently have, um, yeah, officers, like the, the training people say things like, you know, Marcel, you do not belong in my Air Force. Oh, no. <laughs> and I would say, I think you might be right, but tell me more, you know, that's it. But, um, you know, it was, it was that there was a sort of like anyone who has a sense of irony or <laughs> any sense that like, you know, sometimes things are going, getting a little crazy. I mean, it's the sort of stuff now, right? I mean, you talk about like sports and athletes, everyone's concerned about like the hazing. Uh-huh. I mean, that stuff was just rampant, right? And if you had any sense sure. of like, you know, hey guys, maybe we've like stepped off the edge here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you sort of not fit in. And then if you had a sense of humor about like, you know, somebody telling you that you were 
you know, your life was over and that, you know, you were, you know, you were mm -hmm. a totally different person and your, your mind now, if you like, if that makes you giggle, um, yeah. like that's, you know, <laughs> you don't fit in, yeah. but you know, I mean, there were lots of, um, good people there too. And, um, people that I, that I grew, I mean, much like Timothy Pasher, like his work has influenced me. And I think when I read his book every 12 seconds, he, he really related to the people he was working with. He said, you know, these people are just trying to make ends meet and here they are. The only job they can get um, is this job in a slaughterhouse, um, yeah. like you said. And, you know, it's not true. I mean, the people at the Air Force Academy are, by and large, extraordinarily privileged. But there was something, like, they were innocent, right? I mean, yeah, their parents were themselves. They, they, they stepped in there. I mean, they were, they were 18 years old. And then, you know, they're being... Um, you know, raised in a certain way. And I sort of saw them and there was, there was, a, there was a kindness behind it all, right? Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's like, like you said, I mean, John McCain didn't think of himself as a bad people. His family would say he's a loving guy, right? It's just like, it's, it's sort of like, what is your baseline? And so there were, there were people there I could relate to. Um, and then there were people who were hilarious and are still great friends and, you know, got out, you know, sort of as, as soon as they could. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a range of people as, as everywhere. What'd your family think when you left? Were they disappointed or upset? No, I yeah. mean that's the thing. They were always they were always supportive. I mean, um, yeah, I mean I had to have it was it was a pretty major surgery, and I, my mom came down for that, and then um, the Air Force physician had messed it up in part, um, oh, and so I still have some like you know sinus issues, Oof. difficult to fly, and so you know I mean they were like okay, huh. know, um, fine. What so, was the surgery out of curiosity? Uh, you know, it was. I have really serious allergies. One of the terrible things my son has gotten it too. Of, uh, I think primarily dogs, but uh, I have really serious allergies and just a life. Well, at that time, eighteen years of like not dealing with it and just exposing. I had yeah. I grew a massive tumor in one of my sinuses, and it was, it was totally benign. And it, but like it was, you know, I kept getting sinus infections over and yeah, over. Yeah. And finally, they did a CAT scan, and they realized that my whole sinus was like, you know blocked with this massive uh, tumor um and it was you know it was, it was mostly fine it's just that when they removed it um they like butchered my my sinus cavity with their scalpel on the way yes. out or in or who knows what yeah you know one of the weird things about health and, and pain and suffering is that we only really have our own experience right and so i, I i've had an issue come up recently myself like i probably have a deviated septum and i just yep. never realized i did i just thought oh i just don't breathe out of my left nostril exactly. Isn't everyone like that? And and then I read about someone else. I think, I think it was like an athlete. Maybe it was like LeBron James, someone who had gotten cracked over his mm -hmm. nose and said, "Yeah, you know, I couldn't breathe out of my nose for a while, like my left nostril." I was like, "Wait a minute, people totally. can breathe," totally. and it didn't even occur to me to think about that. And but it totally. just tells you how really understanding other people's pain, or even understanding your own pain and our own struggles, is is relative to what's possible yeah. out there is really totally. difficult. And yeah, there's this. There's this Buddhist concept of anatta that that I think is really beautiful, and it's it's usually have you heard of this concept? No. So the the concept is usually interpreted as the self is a fiction. There is no self. Okay. Right. Yeah, but I, do. I actually think the better interpretation of it, not that I'm some sort of Buddhist scholar who understands the original Sanskrit, I don't understand it at all. But I just like better the flip side of it, which is it's not that the self is a denial. It's that there's a bigger consciousness out there, mm -hmm. right? And I don't even mean mm -hmm. this in a metaphysical sense. You can be totally an atheist and just believe. It's, it's kind of a Peter Singerian view of the interchangeability of perspectives, that yeah. consciousness is probably the same. I have no reason to think yeah. in my interactions with you that you feel things differently than me. And right. so when you cry out in pain, when you're punched in the face, it's probably pretty similar to what I feel. Right. But, but there's this always constant difficulty of actually experiencing that. Because I, even, even yes. if I can see it yeah. and I can kind of get it, right. there's a limitation because I'm not really tapped into it. And yes. you can try to get there with things like meditation, with philosophy, mm. um, 
Therapy will help you become a more empathetic person, but mm -hmm. our natural just neural engineering does not allow us to tap into. And it's yeah. it's not physically impossible. In theory, you could imagine like a, an organism, and I think, er, um, no, not er, Ursula Gwynn. Octavia Butler actually wrote a novel about this, about these characters. I think it's called Parable of the Sower, and it's one of the most brilliant novels I've ever read. Really encourage everyone to read it. Yeah. It's about these hyper-empaths where their brains are actually wired to feel everyone's suffering mm -hmm. and joy at all times. Great. And it's like, it's, it's totally a gift. It's amazing because they're incredibly empathetic people. It's also a yeah. curse. Right. Because they're overwhelmed by the amount of feeling, which is, I think, one of the reasons, yeah. you know, people like your classmates, if they really did start feeling what it's like to be a little kid in Vietnam who just had your family burned alive too much. by an American warplane, it's just too much. Yeah. Like, how can you deal with that? And, um... There's this great book called Humanity. I think it's a story of morality. Have you heard about this book? I think it's by this philosopher, Jonathan Glover, I think is his name. Anyways. I don't think I've read it. So it's, it's a great book that goes into both the psychology and philosophy of atrocities. And what he says is that over and over again, in pretty much all atrocities, this phenomenon you see of a cold joke, mm -hmm. where there's something that people are deeply uncomfortable with. And they know if they actually try to empathize with the victim it's going to take them into a really dark place quickly. Right. So what they have to do is laugh about it. Because yeah. once you laugh about it, it just kind of relieves the tension. Laughter is a great yeah. thing to do when you're feeling right. stressed out in general. Right. And so yeah. it, I, I almost wonder if these kids who are laughing, it's because they were actually on some level feeling very deeply for these victims. Yeah. And it was coming in incredible tension with their view of themselves and their government. And totally. the only thing they could do, the only response they could they could manifest yeah. was to joke about it. No, I mean I think that's a that's a really it's a really smart insight. I mean I I remember like I was um, I was tearing up. I mean I think most people would, well I don't know most people. I mean if you were to watch the film and see yeah. the story, you would like you would you would have an emotional reaction. I think many people would right. And I was tearing up, and then other people were like screaming and then yelling and laughing. Yeah. And I think that you're right, but I also think that it then. I mean, it is what you said. I, I sort of, from that experience and some others at the Air Force Academy, was kind of like, you know, look, we have to be at this, we have to be at least open to the idea of thinking about the, the powerless, right? I mean, yeah. here's this, the, the U.S. military complex, right? So powerful, and there's these people just crying. And, and I was sort of like, you know, it opened my eyes to the idea that people won't naturally find their way to defending the powerless. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a, somehow, right, in our culture, in our world, um, that is not something that is ingrained. It's not, it's not the most natural or most likely path. And then I, you know, in, after law school, I immediately went into, I, Charles Ogletree was just a brilliant mentor of mine in huh. law school. And he um, both encouraged me to be a law professor, but also encouraged me to think about criminal defense work. And he had said, That's you know, awesome. he said that, you know, there is something really sublime about uh, helping someone who is sort of beyond help that the, the world yeah. has given up on. And, um, and it's really true, right? I mean, people think of public defenders as the kind of rabble rousers and they're just out there getting people off. But the reality is, I mean, a lot of times you're doing social work, right? Yeah. I mean, you're like talking to a family about how to get their green card. You're talking, I mean, it's, it's like you have the people who are at the margins of society um, and there's the people that are policed, right? And yeah. so you're working with those people. And then I said, well, you know, the people who are the worst of all, right, are those who are sentenced to death. I mean, presumably, if they're, yeah. not, they're not wrongfully convicted. And just the other day, I was telling somebody, you know, just in the subordinate clause, I mentioned that I had represented a serial killer. And he's like, oh, my mm. God, you represent a serial killer. And it's true, right? I mean, it's a jarring thing. And how that person could get to that place and all these other things. 
But this was someone whose own family, you know, was not going to talk to this person. This is someone who, you know, they have no one in the whole world. Um, they are truly it, right? I mean, they, yeah. they, 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 there's the prison guards and there's them and then maybe a lawyer, right? Yeah. And I remember working on those cases and thinking, right, like, I don't even know what I am. Am I a social worker? Am I a lawyer? Because yeah. you're going to lose. I mean, most of the time you're going to lose. And so, you know, it's just like you're coming up with things. And in doing that work, there was a point where, I think it was after a hearing or an oral argument, but one of my colleagues said, why are you ordering the veggie burger? Mm. You know, and I said, what do you mean? And they said, I mean, the government is trying to kill our client in there and you're, you're worried about the cow? Yeah. Um, and then that gave me this moment of reflection because I, I think at that point I was vegetarian, uh-huh. not vegan, and, but, but my colleague was concerned that I was concerned about a cow. Yeah. And, it, and then that gave me a moment to think about the, the, the sort of like, is there a limitation on empathy? Like if, yeah. if I care about somebody that the state is trying to kill, can I not also care about a cow? Like, you know, like are there, like, is there too much? And there's probably for some people an overload, right? Yeah. Because it seems so daunting. And I think that with animal choices in particular, you see people saying, oh, I'm trying to recycle. I got an electric car. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, this is just too much. And yeah. as you point out, right, like even being vegan, right, just going out and buying a vegan cupcake is not enough, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, like, we're, all, we're, we're never doing enough. But like even that seems like too much for so many yeah. people, right? Like they can connect. They can relate. And they say, well, but I mean, you know, I can only do so much, right? I mean, I yeah. can't get dairy out. I mean, you know, like the, the, the non-dairy cheese, it just doesn't melt. You yeah. know I mean? Like the, 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 no, I mean, this is the thing, <laughs> It right? doesn't, unfortunately, I mean, I, just so you all know, I'm <laughs> going to admit it now, on, live on the air, confessions of a vegan advocate. We love dairy, you, Miyoko, but... The vegan cheese kind of sucks. It still sucks. No. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's, it's just kind of, different. The number it's different. of times it comes not up... Mozzarella. The number of times it comes up in my life, right? I mean, because yeah. I'm in this other orbit, right? I mean, you, you see, like, I'm always with professors and academics and lawyers and they're like, oh, you know, I could do that, that whole vegan thing. But, I mean, it's, it's the cheese that kills yeah. me. I mean, you know, it never, never melts. And I, I'm, I mean, these are people I respect. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to make fun of them right now. But it, it always strikes me like the, the, the sort of lack of melting cheese, yeah. right? It's like, it's, it's like what tips people to be like, no, I, I need dead cows right? yeah. I mean, in my life as part yeah. of my life. I mean, and it's, you know, it's I need more climate change. So, yeah. yeah. You know, what's... <laughs> I want to hear more about this serial killer because that sounds like a fascinating case. But what's really interesting to me about your colleague's comment is, which maybe they didn't recognize, or maybe they're, maybe I'm analyzing the situation incorrectly, but it seems like they're replicating this the same error the state was making, right? right? That they were saying to you about the cow what everyone else was saying about the serial killer, exactly. right? And so, and and that just doesn't work. You, right. You, you can't. I mean, we know this as lawyers. When you make, I mean, occasionally you can make inconsistent arguments and it plays out okay, but usually right. the judge and the jury see through that shit and right. say, no, no, you can't, those are totally incompatible. So right. if you're going to say that just because someone doesn't have the same social standing or power right. or the race or they've done some things you don't like or they don't have the same attributes of the people you think deserve to be protected, right. it doesn't mean they shouldn't be protected, right? You sure. can't make that argument for someone who's marginalized in some way and then deny you know, all the other beings of this earth that you don't care about any sort of moral status. and Exactly. No, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think I said something like, we're not going in. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I said something about, you know, we're not representing Mother Teresa here, yeah. right? I mean, like, this isn't somebody where we think is innocent. Like, we think that this person deserves 
a more humane treatment than, than, our, than our system is affording them, right? We think that this person deserves humanity and respect, but not because they're perfect. And I was like, you know, I mean, if we were out there just helping the very least among us right now, which is, you know, an innocent child that's starving or something, I mean, maybe we could have this debate. But, you know, yeah. like, we're all doing the best we can where we are, right? I mean, there's multiple I – I, I firmly believe that there's sort of multiple versions of each person within themselves. You kind of – where you get bumped into and what track you're in. And I, yeah, I mean, I sort of say, like, look, not everyone is going to be an animal rights activist, but you can see the picture. You can help. Sure. Like, there's something you can do, right? There's some, there's some, like, yes, you, we may need you in the uh, realm of, of child neglect or, or mm-hmm. whatever, right? But, but, you know, don't be, don't be a stranger, right? You can still, you can still help. And I think there's lots, yeah. there's lots of causes in the world that matter. Um, and I'm glad for all the people who are working on all those causes. Um, but it doesn't mean we just sort of pretend that, like, the animal suffering goes to the end of the queue. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to a few sociologists on this tour. Great. Including this guy, Duncan Watts, who's a professor at Penn. And one of the metaphors that Duncan gave me when I first talked to him four or five years ago, when he was at Microsoft Research. And Duncan's a legendary sociologist. His background yeah. is as a physicist. And all of his work is super objective empirical. It's fascinating yeah. work that cool. uh, I'll talk about with Duncan or another time. But one of the points he made is movements really have to be like an onion. They're different mm-hmm. layers. And it's not just the core. I mean, an onion is an, is an organism. It's a living right. organism that has the layers for a purpose. And the layers on the outside are bigger. They have a higher diameter. There's more cells, while the layers on the inside are smaller. But the layers on the outside, so someone who's not at the core, but maybe is just posting something on social media positive, mm-hmm. or even just right. saying a word of support to you in your yeah, litigation, exactly. you know, because... I'm going to talk about this with you as well. There's a lot of people kind of make fun of you as an animal advocate, not just as an animal advocate, any early movement. If you go back to the early gay rights movement in the 1960s and 70s, you hear them mocking, Mm -hmm. being mocked even by other LGBTQ folks. People within their own communities are saying, come on, get serious. Like, don't don't write about things like gay marriage. I mean, Evan Wilson, another person I'm going to interview in the next couple of weeks, legendary lawyer and and gay rights activist who's been very supportive of of us, actually, and I'm really grateful for his advice. But he wrote a thesis in 1982 at Harvard, your alma mater, yeah. predicting that gay marriage would be seen as a constitutional right within one generation. And you know what he's told me, and I'm going to talk to him about this, is how everyone just kind of laughed at him, mm-hmm. including other LGBTQ right. people, which is the – that's the toughest thing. It's like, wow, even the people who themselves absolutely are, are being victimized by this injustice and who, who this is their vision. This is a future that's better for them. They don't even see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think this is so true of animals because like so many people – don't see the immense benefits to us. Right. You know, and, and this this is not, we're not just like these negative Nancys who want everyone to be unhappy <laughs> and not have melted cheese and like sit at, right. at, at tables where they're eating shitty food and, you know, dry <laughs> lima beans. That's right. There, there's, there's immense joy. And I don't even mean just like the material comforts of eating a delicious Beyond Burger, although Beyond Burgers are great. Delicious. You should go eat yeah. a Beyond Burger. I mean, just having a better relationship to the world around us totally. and to animals. Like, Imagine a world where dogs receive the same protections that children receive, where medical care for dogs, yeah. daycare for dogs. You know, it's a funny thing. Um, Tony Shea, who's unfortunately passed away recently, he's a founder and former CEO of Zappos who committed yeah. suicide, unfortunately. But he's yeah. known for making, like, the best company in the world in terms of employee well-being. Everyone loved working there, consistently rated the number one company in the world. He did a survey of his employees when they were building the new campus in Las Vegas, and assessed, what do my employees need most? What are the things that you, would make you feel so happy as a worker, that would just bring so much meaning to your life? You want to guess what the number one thing was by a huge margin, according to Tony Shea? I don't know. What was it? It's doggy daycare. Yeah. People felt guilty about leaving it's their great. dogs at home. And they, did, and they were paying so much money 
to send their dogs to daycare. And especially among the younger generation, you know, a lot of people aren't having kids, but they got dogs, they got cats, and they love their dogs. So imagine a world where your own companions are given the respect they deserve, where you're not afraid that if a police officer knocks on your door because there's a no-knock warrant, and maybe it's even the wrong house. I had a friend who was just accosted by the police in Oakland who had just moved into her house, and she was... She almost got raided and had all these armed men outside of her house just because they thought she was the former tenant, right? And if they, they didn't have a no-knock warrant, thank God. But if they had a no-knock warrant, which is a warrant where the police yeah. don't even have to knock on the door, they can just bust it open and start shooting. You know, you know this better than I do because I see an right. article on your, on your table right now about how the, the police have killed yeah. so many people's dogs and cats with complete impunity. Yes. Complete impunity. Oh, yeah. Right? They can murder your dog because they had an address wrong on a warrant, yes. and you probably at best maybe might get a maybe a hundred dollars, maybe not even that. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the police. I mean, this is this is one of the things that I think is a paradox and a difficulty for the animal movement, right? I mean, for those people who are invested in the criminal side of the animal equation, say like we're really going to get something out of the criminal system. I'm always perplexed at how soft we treat the police, right? Yeah. I mean, they kill their horse, they kill a dog. And the movement never goes after them, right? But you have like a random person who's done something terrible to a dog or cat and we are like, we want maximum charges and because we want to be mainstream, we want to be part of this police community. And I, I mean, the, the numbers range, right, wildly because it's hard to get good data, but police departments kill a lot of companion animals yeah. a year. Um, and there's just last year, and they lie about it. And they lie about it. Yeah, they no, absolutely I mean, lie. About absolutely it all lie about it. I mean, I yeah. worked on a case um, with a with a colleague here named John Campbell, one of the best tort lawyers in the country. He had um, his award winning lawyer in in Missouri. Uh, he and I took a case because no plaintiff's lawyers wanted to take it in West Virginia. We were just trying to shop it out. I, I found out that you know an activist had sent me an article about it. Um, basically, a, a, a police officer had went and put um, the gun right up to a dog and was about to shoot it by all accounts. Mm-hmm. And um, a woman came down the hill and said, hey, stop, 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 and pushed the gun away from the dog. And then she was tackled and arrested and charged with wow. obstruction. Um, so the oh good news God. is the dog didn't die. Yeah. The bad news is that this woman was being coerced into pleading guilty for obstruction of justice for yeah. stopping um, a dog shooting, right? And so we were sort of you know, bringing this case saying, Look, this guy was about to shoot a dog. He probably yeah. has shot dogs in the past. Like, let's let's uh, let's dig into this. And you know, you see these, and the numbers are high. And last year, um, I think it's Stefano Block and Danielle Martinez wrote an article about canicide by the police officers. And one of the things that you know, maybe it's predictable, but this is this is the role of policing in our society. The dogs are not shot by police in equal distribution. Mm-hmm. They are shot overwhelmingly in marginalized communities yeah. and extraordinarily high rates in black neighborhoods, yeah. right? And so we see the stories about um, black men being shot, but it turns out that their dogs are yeah. also shot at much higher rates, right? But we don't, but that's not part of the movement for some reason, right? Yeah. I mean, I get the pushback, um, like, look, Justin, this is too much about humans, not enough about animals. I get that all the time and I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm comfortable. And, but, but like, we're not even invested in the people who are killing dogs and are high profile members of society. Right? We're not doing it on the corporations. We're not doing it on these sort of puppy mills and we're not even doing it for the police, yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's really a jarring juxtaposition, right? But then we got, I mean, if there was a guy down on the sidewalk right now who kicked his cat, yeah. they would be, I mean, this could be a headline, right? This could be the front page of the newspaper. Yeah, and it has been. Right, As you been. write in your book and in your <laughs> yeah. article, um, Justin's got a, a, a great article in the Harvard Law Review called, I think, Palliative Animal Yeah, Law? Palliative I forget what the subhead is, but yeah. it's a great article. And I almost think palliative is almost an understatement because <laughs> you described it as palliative, but 
you really make an argument that it's counterproductive, right. not just palliative. I mean, it's yeah. it's not just that it makes it's only making us feel better, but it, it's actually backfiring because one, it prevents us and distracts us from looking right. at bigger systemic issues, like the Ridgeland example, where we don't look at Ridgeland. Instead, we go after you know the dogfighter exactly. in a poor na- black neighborhood. Uh, but also because just you know ethically, it doesn't align us with other progressive movements that are trying to build solidarity against power. And yes. if you think as I think, and I suspect you think that really fundamentally there is a deep connection between all social justice movements and, and they're about yeah. making sure the powerless get a voice. That's right. At, at least a voice, but ideally that they get respect and dignity and rights. Yes. Then, then it doesn't really make sense for us to reject other causes. Isn't it? Right. Not, I think you were saying the same thing. It doesn't mean you have to go out there and become a lifetime advocate for juvenile justice no. or, or fight capital punishment or whatever right. it is. But at a minimum, we should be thinking about whether the work we're doing is creating solidarity or division between these movements. Because one of the yes. things that always brings social justice movements all stripes down is division. When exactly. everybody's fighting with everyone else. And Yeah. You know, well, I mean, so. I think I see that so clearly, Wayne. I mean, I have to say, like, I, I think that that's one of the things that drove me. I mean, two of the, the catalysts for really, for writing the book, although it had long been nagging me, is the indifference of the animal movement to the powerless people. Right? I mean, yeah. these are truly the people who have nothing. And we're just sort of like, oh, be done with them on this false, truly idealistic hope that that's going to be good for animals, right? We've, yeah. we've never had any data to suggest that this is good for animals, even companion animals, even dogs and cats, right? We just, we've taken on blind faith that like suddenly the world will be better for them. That was one of the things, right? We just sort of like turned our backs on these people. But the second was honestly what I would hear people saying about this new movement that was starting, you know, DXE and these other things, because I would hear people say, well, they're just, they're too radical or they were, you know, oh, they, they just, uh, they, they stole pigs. We would never do that. Mm-hmm. And this resistance and, and cognitive dissonance, frankly, to even having the lawyers use the material that was coming from DXE, right? There's these unstated rules. I mean, you could probably say more about this than me, but, but I have a sense that, I mean, I haven't seen it written anywhere, that a lot of these groups have essentially unstated policies that like they don't want to use footage that comes from DXE because it, it, it's, it's tainted by DXE, mm-hmm. right? Which is shocking, right? I mean, so the, 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 it was the combination of the fact that there would be kind of an alienation of a set of activists because they didn't agree with those strategies. It doesn't mean everyone has to be doing what the social construct of the criminal law has defined as criminal, yeah. right? Not everyone has to be in the crosshairs of the police, but to sort of say, we want nothing to do with those people because they bring our brand down. And then to go so far as to essentially say, well, it's true they got good footage of foie gras or chickens at Costco or whatever, but we just wouldn't want to use that because it, you know, it has this sort of, it seems unreliable or, you know, it's just, I mean, that, like that combination of factors drove me to think, wow, like our carceral thinking has really clouded our vision, right? We've created this division. Like, how could you possibly say that someone who's rescuing a pig is um, harmful to the movement, right? I mean, how could you possibly think that? Like, you are a lawyer, Use what you have. Use your tools, right? And, and I do think it's part of this palliative. Like I've always thought it's a palliative, right? And in medicine, we give palliatives that that kind of hide the pain, right? But they don't yeah. treat the symptoms. Sure. And I think that it really is a palliative in the sense that when we get to read the newspaper and see that we passed a new felony law or that we're putting someone away or prosecuting someone to the maximum extent of the law is the phrase we always use, um, we feel some of our pain dissipating. Like, oh, good, yeah. we're doing something for animals. 
But what it really does, as you said, is ends up masking the fact that we're just letting animal suffering continue at a mass stage, right? I mean, that's what it really does. So we, so we sort of allow ourselves to feel better and it treats the, the symptom, but we don't do anything about the underlying systemic and structural problems that are causing animals to suffer at such a massive level. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I think you're right. I and mean, I think there, there has to be some reflection in the movement, some conversations. And honestly, one of the most disappointing things to me, and I, I don't blame any individual because I, no, no. I understand there are a lot of dynamics at play, and especially in the United States. I think we have this problem in the animal rights movement everywhere, and frankly, in all social justice movements. There's always this tension. I mean, you go back to the civil rights movement, for example. Like, again, Absolutely. we don't know this history, but, but King was very much considered a radical back then. And the NAACP, I mean, there's, you read Taylor Branch's history, which I encourage anyone who cares about social change and justice, read Taylor Branch's history of the civil rights movement. And Roy Moore, the head of the NAACP, wanted nothing to do with King for almost exactly the same reason. Just saying, look at these folks, they're breaking the law, they're doing sit-ins and marches and all these things that are, they're making them, Mm -hmm. you know, seen as criminals and and therefore, you know, we're not going to work with them at all. And we're not going to elevate their profile, even when they're doing work that is inspiring millions of people, even when yeah. they're doing work that th- there was a clear theory behind it. It wasn't right. just, we're going to go out there and break the law because we're angry. Right. It's, it, there's a model. And, and frankly, right. it's, it's a very profoundly American model of yes. civil disobedience. And totally. I think the best democratic theorists have understood that civil obedience is part of democracy. Part of it. It, it is just a fail part safe on systems in democracy that have gone haywire. That you need this kind of check Absolutely. on well, think, the authorities. Yeah, right? I, th- I think Austin Surratt, right, in describing the civil rights movement, said that you know the the, the activists like King um, succeeded in spite of the lawyers, yeah. right? I mean, it, it was not because <laughs> of, right? I mean, Thurgood Marshall has a different history, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not that Thurgood Marshall did nothing, right? I mean, there was important cases being brought and yeah. around the protecting the boycott stuff, but they said at the end of the day, right, it was in spite of, not because <laughs> of, right? And and I, I always keep that it, it's a paraphrase, but I keep that in my mind when I'm talking to my students and the like is, right, don't pretend that you're going to be everything. Like, figure out what you can do that will yeah. be helpful and that won't be obstructive, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely had experiences, and again, I don't want to name any names. And, and I no, think no. it's always coming from the best of intentions. That, that, that is that. absolutely my view. But I've definitely had a lot of experiences, even with criminal defense attorneys, who basically are trying to talk you out of doing this work. And yeah. on the one hand, I totally understand people saying, hear the risk, because, you know, I yes. think everybody who's listening to this podcast knows I'm facing quite a few felonies. And, and there's, I think, a very real chance that I'll be serving some prison time sometime in the next couple of years. But part of it is not just concern for the individual defendant. Part of it is just this reputational concern for the movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you really want to do this? And, and even the reputational concern of the judge, you know, mm-hmm. that oh, you can't say these sorts of things. You can't do these sorts of things. And I'm not saying we don't think about the dynamics. Of course, right. a strategic activist is always going to ask themselves, okay, how does this affect public opinion? But a lot of times with movements, whether you're talking about the gay rights movement, the women's suffrage movement, what's holding you back is not a genuine empirical concern about how reputation will change right. over time from you speaking out or doing whatever action you're doing. It's your own internalized fear, right? right? And, yeah. and actually, you know, we were just talking about Cass Sunstein, but my former mentor, Cass Sunstein, wrote a book recently called Change, you know, right. How Change Happens, which one of the... the the key concepts in the book is this notion of preference falsification, where people right. basically deny their own truth, yeah. thinking they have to. And they don't realize that there are a lot of other people who believe the same thing. Yeah. And, and the example he gives, or the examples he gives most prominently in the book, are the gay rights movement, where for a long time there were a lot of LGBTQ folks who stayed in the closet because they thought, 
I can't say this. You know, if I say this, yes. I'm going to be so ashamed. Everyone's going to attack me. So I, it's better for me to stay quiet. Mm-hmm. Not realizing, I mean, 10% of the population is gay. There are a lot of people out there right. who actually feel the same way. Right. And just as importantly, even the folks right. who are not gay, when they realize 10% of the population is gay. Exactly. And that it's their brother. It's exactly. their sister. It's their nephew. It's, it's their coworker who they love. It's their best friend. Mm-hmm. Then their views of this are going to change. And, and the same thing was true of me too, where sexual harassment was something that lots of people were really concerned about and were experiencing in a very negative way. But it felt kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was being you know, difficult if I just talked openly about this. And so they didn't do it. But once people started doing it, then they realized they had real power. And I think the same thing is going to be true of the animal rights movement. That right. when we're actually willing to stand by our positions, and I'm not saying we have to do it in any particular way. It doesn't mean we right. have to shame people or attack people personally, right. but just speak our truth. Speak yeah. our truth and people will resonate with that, you know? Yeah, I think so. that's, that's, I mean, and I, I think that's, I think that the, the I, I've been thinking for a long time about what does it look like to try and empower people for me, it's often the students that I'm talking to, but lawyers that I'm talking to as well. What does it mean to get them to speak their truth when it comes to animals? Because, I, again, you know, I, I don't want to, to focus too much exclusively on the, on the criminal law, but I think that the criminal law obstructs the ability of people to speak their truth. I think that it gives them a sort of mental and verbal shortcut that seems like they've done something when they haven't. Right, and, yeah. and I've done some survey research that I haven't published yet um, where I asked people you know, if they identified with animal rights strongly, not at all, or mm-hmm. somewhat. And then, I mean, there's a bunch of standards demographic questions that could go into more. But, but, but So I knew if they thought they were an animal rights person or thought they were definitely not an animal rights person. Mm-hmm. And then I asked them a battery of questions about, like, what is the most important thing for an animal lawyer to do? Or what's the most important thing, for, the most important issue facing animals today? And what was amazing, and I have to say, really disappointing to me, but, but amazing... Um, I replicated this twice so far. Um, the people who identify most strongly with the animal rights movement and often indicate that they are on a mailing list or some mm-hmm. other such thing. I mean, we, I didn't say, what do you mean by animal rights, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they, you could, you could you know, quibble with that. But, but they, they self-identify. Those people overwhelmingly, um, in many questions, to a two-to-one ratio, um, sometimes three-to-one, um, f- think that the most pressing issues facing animals are things like crush videos or abuse hmm. by a neighbor. Um, and they think that the most important interventions would be criminal prosecutions or more wow. felony laws. And the people who are, and, and the, there's a whole range, you know, one of the questions is about like, what do you think is the primary cause of animal suffering in the U.S.? Hmm. Like, where's, where, where, where's most animal suffering occur? You know, it went everything from um, not recognizing animals as persons mm-hmm. to factory farming mm-hmm. to, and the people who are most interested in animal rights, who are communicating with our movement, apparently, mm-hmm. would say things like, um, you know, the problem is neighbors abusing animals or, mm-hmm. um, you know, abuse, abuse of, yeah, like yeah. tethering and all. The, I mean, yeah. and, and so that, you know, I think that our own messaging, and maybe it's market driven, right, yeah. <laughs> um, is, is obscuring truth for people who might otherwise even be able to speak it. Right? Yeah. I, I, I think people are getting the idea that bestiality is a major, you know, epidemic in the United States that needs to be addressed with, you know, felony laws. Um, They're getting that message from somewhere, right? They didn't invent it. Um, And I think that it's obscuring their ability to then go out and talk about what's really happening with animals, right? Which you said earlier, like people can relate to that, right? It's something that resonates with people, but they don't know quite how to do it. And they're, they're looking to us and, and frankly, and, and perhaps, um, sometimes to their own detriment, looking to lawyers and looking to authority figures to tell them. Yeah. And then what we tell them sometimes is a bit confusing. 
Yeah. Right? It's not that we only say that, right? I'm not trying to say that. It's not that uh, any of these groups are, are ignoring or pretend. They all have some sort of factory farming campaign going on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them. Um, so they could say, well, no, no, we're doing farming too. But somehow, right, that is obscured. It's, it's, not, what, it's not what ends up sticking. Yeah. Yeah, that I, have you published that recently? No, yet? not okay, yet. I'd love yeah, to see it when it yeah. comes out, and, and maybe even long. talk to you again about this when it is published. But it's, it's funny that research almost makes me think the opposite. That maybe this is not a, a trickle down effect where you've got mm-hmm. the leaders in the animal rights movement kind of teaching everybody, but that there's some sort of cognitive dissonance of one. It's from the ground up that's leading the animal leaders because mm. yeah, I mean, I the, the leaders of the animal rights movement are responding to incentives too, right? And, you know. Fundraising, they've got a staff, yeah. they got to support, and I've I've heard, <laughs> yeah, a lot of leaders. I don't even say who of the animal rights even say, yeah, I kind of did this campaign because I knew I'd get a lot of donors for it. It's like it, I I don't have it necessarily think it's totally. the most strategic campaign, but right, this is what people want, and yes. so I'm just kind of giving them what they want, you know. Um, Absolutely, which it still yeah. begs the question of, okay, well, how did we get to the point where they wanted this when yes. it's just logically and empirically clearly not the most serious. Just, I mean, quantitatively, just isn't the case that bestiality, for example, right. is is more numerous than DBS of animals on factory farms or in right. laboratories. Or right. So, I mean, where does it all come from? And, and this is an age-old question of the human condition. Totally. Even you go to you know old Tolstoy's mm-hmm. novel War and Peace, and he writes about Napoleon going to that river and deciding should I go or not. Or, yeah. And that goes back to the old metaphor, or I think it's an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true or not about Julius Caesar and the, the Rubicon. Right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> did Julius right. Caesar lead his right. army to right. to Rome? Or did his army lead him? It's yes. like he got to the Rubicon. He's like, oh, I don't know what to do. And the army just kept going. He's like, oh, I guess I'm going. Right. You know, and I, it's, it's, it's yes. a really hard question to answer. And then even if you know the answer to the question, the question of do? how you change it, totally. right? If it's the leaders that are driving things, how do we change the leaders when they have such strong incentives and they're gaining so much right. from these you know, appeals that may not be the most effective appeals? And if it's a mass... Of people, then it, the question almost seems harder because it's like, right. well, how do we change everybody? I think that's it's right. It's not just like one or two people. <laughs> We've got to change everybody out there who's more concerned about their neighbor tethering their dog yeah. than the pig who's who's being brutalized and dumped to death or you know, yeah. roasted alive in a factory farm. So I don't know. I think that's it's right. Tough. I mean, I think there's a big political economy question in there, and that's partially why I haven't published it. I'm working on that point. And you know, it, w- it will come as no surprise that I think I reached out to the five largest groups in the U.S., um, and only one would share anonymously some highly decontextualized fundraising data huh. um, because they don't want to talk about the fact that they do raise money. On this. I, I basically, I, I view it as a partial, um, somewhat exculpatory to the movement to say like, look, we're trying to do all this other stuff, but we raise a lot of money when we do a new felony law campaign in Colorado. So we're yeah. going to do that and we bring in some money and then we're going to shift to these other things. Um, I you think write that, about this in the book, right? Yeah, I think you write about this I, yeah, in the book. and I think there's a bit of a, you know, like you could excuse that, but the groups, you know, they didn't want to share their their internal data on it, mm-hmm. um, but they, you know, it's it's from from sort of word of mouth. I mean, there's successful fundraising campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. Like really successful, but then what happens is those donations end up being earmarked and tagged to expanding just sure. the carceral side programs. of the equation, yeah. and then you have more and more of that. But um, but I do think that you're absolutely right. There is a there's a kind of political economy question of like well, what brings in this money? How are these organizations because they are growing, right? And, yeah. and what 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 is the you know I mean growing much faster than the rate of than you know vegans in America or something yeah. like that. So. Absolutely, yeah. So I want to I want to go back to the, the this experience you had at Boston College and then Harvard because mm-hmm. I do think 
you know, Harvard is just one of these places. I mean, it's Harvard. And, um, and I think most people have a very positive view of Harvard, which is justifiable in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people, including you have come out of Harvard. Um, my experience of elite institutions though, is it's really hard to do things that are different. (laughs) Right. Um, And actually there's an interesting book that was just published by another university of Pennsylvania sociologist, Damon Santola about how change often happens at the margins right. because people are highly connected, people who are in a position of privilege, who are already the elites, they have so much to lose yes. from doing something that's a little weird. And I have to say, like, I, one of the things I really admire about Justin is um, I probably would have failed as an academic anyways. Like, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I'm a failed academic. I did what's called a visiting assistant professorship, a fellowship for one year. I tried to write about animals, tried to do animal stuff. Everyone kind of laughed at me. I didn't have the confidence or internal fortitude to continue doing it, so I dropped out. Um, you would have succeeded. I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I published one paper, and I, I still remember this day. And it's honestly the guy who gave me this advice. So really, I won't even say who it was because I don't want right. to make him seem too instrumental. Because like, there's this mythology about the academy being this pure place where we just adjudicate ideas objectively, and we're all just fighting for the pursuit of truth and justice. Um, and I had a conversation with a very, very distinguished professor at Northwestern who sat me down. And he said he had just listened to the talk I gave on climate change and animals. And mm-hmm. it's a paper on climate change, yeah. which is a reputable subject within the academy, and animals, yep. which back in 2007 Nine especially, or, it was yeah. totally not. And he said, great paper, you know, uh, and great that you, you've got CAS's support because CAS is like a legendary figure within the legal academy. And, and so um, that was good. And, and, you know, it got placed pretty well at the University yeah. of Pennsylvania, a lot of you. But he said, I just want to be honest with you right now. There's no chance you're going to get a tenor track position anywhere writing about animals, and you have to write about something else, like right now. Do not make this the focus. Um, and, and I actually thought, no, that can't be the case. So I talked to some other people, <laughs> including some of my former mentors at the University of Chicago, who actually really supported the animal stuff, like mm-hmm. Cass. Mm-hmm. And they all basically said the same thing. Yeah. And, it, but, and the thing about it was this professor was not saying – it's not that this idea doesn't have intellectual merit. Or doesn't have moral merit. He, he was actually very much a supporter. So he was trying to give me just sound advice. Yeah, um, yeah but that was my experience. And in, in all the different elite institutions, and frankly, I've learned this even more as an activist. Like when I leaflet at Stanford, um, I don't leaflet that often anymore, mostly because I don't have time to, because I still really like it. I like talking right. to people as much as I possibly can. Because there's something about being out there just on the streets, talking to whoever random, whatever random person passes by you, that just gives you a, a flavor for how the spirit of the community in a way that reading on social media definitely doesn't because social media (laughs) is such a rarefied, you know, honestly elite driven community, especially on Twitter. Um, The media definitely doesn't because again, the media is, there's a certain filter, but um, my experience of leafleting in a place like Stanford, for example, is so different than the community college in Berkeley. Hmm. And, and the, yeah, the number one way it's different is that people at Stanford just feel like they already know everything and they're already, they, they're the ones who should be teaching and, and they already feel like there's a set of issues I care about. I'm very solid in my understandings of the world. And I'm just not that open. Well, at Berkeley right. Community College, you know, not elite people at all. Um, you know, haven't gotten perfect SAT scores, right. aren't going to go work for Google, you know, honestly, right. probably struggling because, right. you know, getting a, a, a two years degree at a community college is very different than a four year degree in terms of what privilege is. Yes. It affords you. Um, they're all very open. 
Yeah. You know, and so, anyways, this has been that's a long intro, but like, that's interesting. You, so you're at Boston College, you're thinking about capital punishment, which is interesting because I started out doing capital punishment. I've always seen ah. very deep intersections between yeah. capital punishment and animal rights. Me too. What is the thing as someone who's obviously doing quite well for yourself if you're able to get to Harvard and you were in the Naval Academy that opens you to animals? And what was your experience once you were open to animals in these circles trying to advocate for them? Well, I think it was, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how it unfolded. I think that while I was at Boston College, um, what Boston College gave me was kind of a, a forum to just play around in philosophy and social psychology, which I wasn't seeing at the Air Force Academy, huh. and kind of just to think about things that I hadn't thought about. So I, I read um, some of Peter Singer then, and it was you know it was, things were on my mind, but not um, nothing seemed like pressing with animals, and then. Um, but it was, was that all, part of a class, or you just pick it up and decide to read it? Um, I think there was an essay by Singer on something else, and I was okay. interested, and then I then I picked up Animal Liberation. Yeah, and then um, in law school, it was always just dormant. Like I thought, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I actually had planned to go into to international human rights law, and I was going to take a job actually at the International Criminal Court. And um, like I said, Professor Charles Ogletree was encouraging me to look at sort of activist defense and and, and criminal law. And then um, in my third year, I mean, kudos to these students. I mean, I don't know who they are or who they were, but they had posted the, the, this student animal group hmm. was kind of active. And there's probably like three people, honestly. I mean, because I, I, mean, I ended up meeting them. I mean, it's, it's not like there was like some hidden army that was like, you know, just behind the, 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 the curtain. You know, it was like a handful of people. But they were like, there was this bulletin board at the Hark where you, the like kind of student center cafeteria type place. And... I swear, like, every other week there would be something about, like, animals in circuses, like just a flyer. And you could yeah. take one, and then, there, and then there would be, like, it was, it was kind of like leafleting, but no one was there. Okay. And then there was, like, uh, you know, uh, a puppy mill one, and I remember a Viva section one, and I remember just, like, like studying it, huh. being like, what in the world? Uh, and then one day there was this thing that said, you know, interested in animal law, huh. there's going to be a course uh, next semester. And I remember being like, oh, I'm, I'm going to sign up for that. Uh, and it was it was purely like a curiosity, uh, and you know, it was, it, like, like I said, I think Boston College and philosophy had opened me up to it, but I wasn't like, you know, it was not on my radar. And I remember, you know, um, sitting there and telling even classmates, saying like, you know, there's this class, and they're like, well, when is it? And they're like, I said, well, uh, it's Friday at eight a.m. And they're like, you're out of your mind. Like, you're going to take a <laughs> your last semester of Friday at eight a.m. It was once a week at eight a.m. And I and I was like, yeah, yeah. And, and um, was it Steve Wise? It was David Wolfson. David no, Wilson, I mean yeah. Steve taught the first class okay. there, and then then they yeah, moved David. on to David. And um, you know, David, David a did a guy. great like job. And, but you know, it was just like a lot of reading. I mean, more than yeah. anything else, it was it was sort of the reading and the discussion and various people that came in. And by the end of the class. Um, I was like, all right, like there is, like to me, there was nothing else that more than needed to be said. And yeah. I was just like, anything that I could get my hands on to read or talk to, um, I was, I was doing it in the spare time and I was sort of committed. And I still remember the last time that I ate any, any meat and I came home and I, I, I was, I was really into to, to Chinese food and I had huh. some orange chicken huh. and I thought to myself, you know, this is not worth an animal dying. Like this yeah. is, this is done. I'm done. And it was like, we had just moved to San Francisco. And then from then on, it was kind of like, it was like you said, it, was, it felt, uh, it actually felt liberating to be doing something that was consistent with what I thought was better for other beings on the planet. And, yeah. and then I, like, I felt good about it, right? It was doing little things. It was just, it was incremental, but it was, yeah. it was, um, and then when I got to, 
Um, academia, I, I definitely wanted to get tenure first and uh-huh. then um, take more of a plunge. I was doing some stuff with various lawyers behind the scenes, but I was not trying to write articles in it. And mm-hmm. I had wanted to do this book, but I hadn't wanted to, uh, you know, and it wasn't, I will, I will say, I didn't have any specific advice, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really asked. I, I, I was, I was, it was pretty clear to me that that was not going to be a gainful path. <laughs> um, like, you know, I mean, still there's a, yeah. there's a thing called the FAR form where you submit like your interests in academic, we're in appointments right now. And, you know, everyone's looking at, like, what classes you list that you want to yeah. teach. And I think and that if you... I, I, no, class. it's not. Well, I mean, you, you can list up to, like, nine. And yeah. I think if you put animal law on there, it, it's it's still a demerit, right? I yeah. mean, I think it's, it counts against you. Um, and and I'm mindful of that. And I, and, I, and I was sort of like... And now I take it as, you know, I'm one of these people that's in this position of privilege. I take it as an opportunity to try and help people who are trying to rise up, like, you know, whatever they need, whether it's, sometimes I think it is best for them to, um, you know, be true to themselves, but not like lead with the animal first, right? I was just trying to get somebody a federal clerkship and I said, you know, we may downplay this piece Mm -hmm. a little bit um, for the federal judiciary. And so I think of it as like trying to enable these people to find their voice because we still live in a society where you can't lead with it. I mean, you will get laughed at. I mean, I get laughed at. I mean, it's it's funny now because I used to get laughed at just by the non-animal people who would be like, you know, I can't believe that's what you want to spend your time on, right? Animals of all the problems in the world. And now the animal people- Yeah, like your colleague with a veggie burger. Exactly, exactly. And now it's sort of like, you know, I still get that because, you know, like the, I get the jokes, you know, whenever there's like a, a vegan comic strip or whatever, I mean, people send it and it's, it's fine. Um, but the, but I also now get the the animal people, right? A lot of hate mail from the animal people are like, oh, you know, like, how dare you? Like, who cares? Who gives a rat's ass about this human, right? I mean, yeah. you're supposed to be focused on the animals, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, I, just, I truly believe that, the, that we are going to see increasingly these social movements are linked. The oppressions are linked, the way we are yeah. treating our children and thinking about how we react to violence and what we criminalize and what we don't criminalize, that these are driving it. But, but so I sort of get it from both sides now yeah. where lots of animal lawyers, people are, you know, uh, even the last time I did uh, uh, talk with you, I think on Facebook or something, I was getting uh, emails for a couple of days, you know, like, nice. you know, <laughs> you know, you said this and, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it's a, uh, you know, so I, I take it seriously. I mean, I, and I love the passion of people that are, that are out there for the animals. And I would just say, I'm there with you. Like, I, I mean, I fully feel the suffering of the animals. I wish the law would change overnight for them. Um, but I, I just ask us to all look inside ourselves and say, like, do we think we've seen progress? We've had a lot of criminalization in the last yeah. three decades. Do we think things are better or worse for animals? Like, what do we want from our legal mm-hmm. system? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where I come down. Like, I mean, it's, I think everyone is earnest, but I earnestly believe that if we don't do some introspection on the role of, of criminal law in our, in our movement, um, we're actually short-circuiting ourselves. Like we're hurting ourselves more yeah. than we're helping ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously don't agree with that sort of pushback against your work from yeah. saying it's only about it's only about the animals. Why do you care about humans? Because I think you're making a strategic point about the animals too. Right. I mean, exactly. I think people should just substantively care about other issues because, you know, again, humans are animals too, and <laughs> right. and, and and it, it matters. It, it right. does matter. But um, I almost think that that pushback might be a sign of the animal rights movement's growing power. Mm-hmm. That we feel confident enough to even say those things. And I'm not saying yeah. – and, no, and it's one of the perversities of power. Oftentimes when you feel powerful enough that you're not ashamed of your own movement, right. then you start totally. you know, pushing your elbows out a little bit and trying right. to push other people aside. Exactly. Instead of realizing, you know, let's all link hands and work together, and totally. which is generally the way. I mean there's this old um, acronym that Charles Tilley uses. He's a 
the sociologist at Cornell, legendary social yeah. movement scholar, and uses this acronym WUNC, worthy, unified, numerous, and committed. That yes. when you're seen as worthy, in other words, you're just good, not yeah. just good in your domain, but just good people generally, mm -hmm. then people will support your movement. When you're unified, when they see you as part of an integrated whole that's yes. working together very collaboratively, then people are more responsive to social movements. But uh, the question I wanted to ask you is, one, are you still in touch with David Wilson? Does he, does he know that his class was one of the things that drove you in this direction? I haven't talked to him for a while, but I okay. mean, many years ago, I told him, like, look, it was, it was your class. And I, th I mean, I think hopefully he feels uh, happy about that. That's but awesome. I, I mean, that's, I mean, one of the things that I always say, I mean, and I, I will say that, you know, even in these rarefied institutions like law schools around the country, I mean, two, two semesters, three semesters ago, um, right before COVID hit, unfortunately, I was a visiting professor at Harvard. Uh, Harvard Law School, and I was reminded, was, you know, all the experience. I mean, you see, like, lots of people do have positive experiences. I had a number of um, good and number of negative experiences. I mean, the the elitism is extreme. It's it's even sure. more than you can, you know. I, mean, I think most people can fathom. But I um, I taught a large section of a, um, a criminal procedure class, like ninety students or something. And what I what really gives me hope, I have to say, is that. Folks are moving into positions, you know, like I was there for a semester, but there's other people, Kristen Stilt is there. I taught a large section and, you know, as a visitor, so the students were skeptical. There was a lot of mm -hmm. testing at the beginning, like, is this guy up to our standards? You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 there's that sort of thing. But by the end, um, the students, you know, including the, the students who are just, I mean, there's people at Harvard Law School who have known they're going to be an academic from, you know, hmm. high school. And they are so just stupendous and, and truly the elite credentials, you know. Mm -hmm. They're at Harvard Law School after their second PhD and a Rhodes mm -hmm. Scholar. And some of them that were leading, you know, the law review and other things came up to me and said, you know, I, I heard you're interested in animal law. And, hmm. um, you know, because once they've established that the people in the elite are are worthy, yeah. um, which I wasn't as a student, right? As a yeah. student, it's like that's a fringe thing. Sure. But once you're teaching a big, it wasn't required, but like sort of a quasi-required class at one of these institutions, and then it was right around the mid-semester, they started to say like, can I, can I have lunch and talk to you about this animal? So like, what we, and I mean, it was so absolutely just refreshing. I mean, earnest, brilliant students saying, you know, I really think of myself as a civil rights person. I haven't thought about this animal issue. Uh, and that, those were not the conversations I was having at Harvard Law School when I was there, you know, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. But there, there's this, like, we are, just what you were saying, so maybe think of it, like, the success of the movement, the movement is growing. And we're at the point now where people are credible, right? Credible validators. Like, they, are, the people in these institutions, they need validation. They need to believe this is a, a reliable source. And yeah. when they do... They're ready for the message, right? Yeah. And and it's still not going to be like, okay, put on your application that you want to go teach animal law. Yeah. But increasingly, I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, the number of people who are then saying, wow, this is really important. And I've, I had uh, one of my former students from Harvard uh, right now who's um, been clerking the federal federal court and is heading to the U.S. Supreme Court to clerk. Like, they're still reaching out with, like, animal-related questions. That's awesome. And so the possibility of sort of you know, penetrating into these spheres that I think where before it was all kind of ha-ha yeah. is starting to change. And it, it requires it people is, yeah. like you and people like us that are doing the the sort of the what's viewed as traditional, you know, reading traditional research, engaging with these students where they're at or these professors where yeah. they're at, and then they have questions. Right? I still think most of my colleagues, I love my colleagues in the law faculty, most of them are still, they're kind of in their niche and they're saying, you know, crazy, crazy animal. 
But the next generation is asking yeah, the question and they're I seeing people, really. they're seeing people who are doing this. And that's why I think that just having animal law programs, having things out there, because people are starting to say, well, this is a thing, huh? Like this yeah. is a thing you do, huh? Um, and that's why I'm excited to have you speaking to the students in the public tonight, right? Like I just sort of said to people, like it, it's an opportunity to, to expand your horizons, right? Which sure. really, and, and, and because there are, there's a rarefied group of people who only think that a certain education level is worthy of their time. It's, it's sort of yeah, what you were saying yeah, with the Stanford yeah. level. And when you, but when you hit that, that, that point, and they're like, oh, oh, he knows Tilly. Oh, he knows Erica Chenworth. Like, yeah. oh, he's read uh, Cass Sunstein. Then it, like, that validation, they're, they're, they're able to like, listen. And, and you know, it's I mean, it's, it's, there's a sort of stratification yeah. in our society. And so, but we're, we're putting people in that, in that realm where a generation ago we couldn't have. And I think that that bodes well for the movement. I mean, I, I don't I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic about anything ever, but, but I think that that's, that's yeah. something that I've seen. It's, it's less kind of scoffing and silliness and more people that are kind of. Yeah. Oh, earnestly oh. supporting. Yeah. There's, there's another student of yours. Hopefully he doesn't mind. I'll contact him after the podcast and he's upset <laughs> about this. I'll, I'll remove it from the podcast, but you know, Joey. Yeah. Yeah. He's in San Francisco now. So he, he's, he's vegan and he's an animal rights supporter, I think because of that class. And he reached out to me after he moved back to the Bay. Really? Area. Yeah, he's because he. That's amazing. I also knew him incidentally because I'm on the board of the Climate Defense Project, and he was an intern for CDP. I think the summer before, yes. he took your course. But That's he took amazing. your course, and and he's he's an animal rights supporter, and he's vegan, and he's he's awesome. He was supportive of our mayoral campaign when I ran for office. That's awesome. Which is a totally different story. Um, before we go, and I know we've been talking for a while now, I definitely want to talk about AgGag, which yeah. seems like one of the big things sure. that you've done over the course of the last couple of years. So can you just describe to people what the ag-gag laws are and, yeah. and why you think this is a more promising avenue for legal activism than, say, putting people in prison? Well, sure. I mean, you know, there's this question. I mean, we've all, we've all heard the saying that if slaughterhouses have glass walls, right, then what? We'd be vegan. We'd be something. Um, I mean, I think some of your work exposes that that's not true. Yeah. Um, but what we also know is, uh, I mean, there's a really interesting literature on transparency. So I, I won't go into that. I mean, I think Timothy Basharat's book, again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has been influential to me on that, that note. But I've always been a believer because, as I said, just seeing flyers for me. Like having information is better than not having information. Being able to sort of, you know, Timothy and I have debated this and he said, you know, look, you put these things out there in a, in a neoliberal, in a capitalist society, you can commodify anything, right? Mm-hmm. You, can, you, can, you can sell animal suffering. You can say like, come, you can be the pig slaughterer, which is $100 a pig slaughterer and the people will pay money, right? That you, you, can, you can market and, and commodify anything. I think there's truth to that, but it doesn't mean we don't want to know like the ground truth of how the pigs are killed. But there is still value in me being able to say, you know, when there's a small pig and it's injured, somebody is going to, if it's lucky, find it and smash its skull into yeah, pieces concrete, on concrete. Yeah. And, and somebody can be, no, 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 that's not true. No, no, no I have a video of it from yeah. right here. And so I've always been of the belief that, you know, information is helpful and people can be overwhelmed by information. And I understand people have different reactions to images and things like that. But I've always been one of those persons that think if we're going to appreciate the sentience of our fellow animal beings, we have to be able to engage with their suffering. That's what, you know, we were talking about before this, you know, I read these veterinary articles about ventilation shutdown and other things. I want to hear how these people are talking about this, how how they talk about these macabre things. Well, an ag gag laws came around, right, in the early sort of 2010s 
where states were annoyed, basically, for lack of a better word, with the fact that um, investigators were revealing things that were going on in factory farms. And sometimes it would lead to a boycott. And at least some of their internal documents suggested that for a period of time, and we could debate what it meant, there was consumer changes of behavior, right? Maybe they would stop buying a kind of cheese or maybe they would, um, you know, even there would be a drop in a certain kind of meat. I mean, it certainly happened after Oprah's show on mad cow disease, which is a separate Mm -hmm. matter. So, you know, you saw some consumer changes in behavior, um, and the movement said, well, what could we do? We may not win in the marketplace of ideas, right? And so we should make it illegal to gather that information um, or distribute it. And I think, um, you know, we could say lots about the details of them, but Idaho and Iowa and Utah, some of the early joiners, um, then, you know, in a, in, a, in a manner that I think is less threatening to organizations and individuals because it's civil, you know, states that I've been less interested in and, and, and frankly just less engaged in the litigation, North Carolina and Arkansas mm-hmm. have civil laws um, that diabolically look a bit, you know, they, they track a little bit with the new Texas abortion mm-hmm. laws because they, yeah. they are civil causes of action that, that, that plaintiffs can bring as opposed to the government mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. top down. So there's interesting things about those laws, but they were never really my focus. I, I was always really interested in the idea that you would criminalize someone who is trying to create transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we brought a, a, a wave of challenges to those, um, essentially saying that the investigators had free speech claims. Um, and, you know, on the whole, we did really well in really um, conservative well. rural yeah. districts. You know, we, we won um, entirely on the Utah law and Utah didn't, didn't appeal. Um, and in, in Idaho, we, you know, it's it's a bit of a mixed decision, although, I mean, this is what often happens, right? I won't get into the, the deep law of it. But we won on the, um, there's no question that we won that you can use deception to enter, which is one of the things they, mm-hmm. had, they had criminalized. And then the, the ability to sort of use deception during employment, during an employment investigation is a little bit... Um, it's, it's one of those questions that lawyers are gonna, going to, to fight about, right? It, what we want is that they interpreted the statute to require that you have to intend to harm the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, any good activist would know, well, I do intend to cause a boycott or something else. And so we had mm-hmm. said that it includes economic harm. The court said they didn't read it that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a good lawyer could go in and say, look, all they wanted to do was, was sort of cause economic pressure. They're sure. not within the scope of the criminal statute. But um, so, I mean, by and large, they've been, Really, the courts have been receptive to the idea that these anti-transparency measures are problematic. And I think, you know, for animal lawyers, it's a, it's a sort of case study in showing that we are part of a broader movement, right? Rather than going after, um, which I think is a more shameful part of our history, you know, religious slaughter. Terrible. We should not be slaughtering animals for some deity, mm-hmm. uh, in my view. But... Um, you know, we were very active in litigation and legislation trying to ban, um, for example, the Santeria's religious slaughter in Florida. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't want animals being slaughtered in the city of Hialeah. But uh, if you look back at the city council hearings, it was filled with animal groups testifying about how these were devil, devil worshipers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now in one of the sort of iconic constitutional law cases, a case called uh, City of Hialeah versus Lakumi, um, the animal lawyers thankfully lost. And it's a case that I use all of the time in my litigation. Civil rights litigation, um, you know, it was a key case in trying to fight the Trump travel ban. Hmm. It's a key case in all sorts of things because basically the law didn't say we don't like Santeria's. Basically mm-hmm. the law said um, here are all the ways we're going to prohibit what the Santeria's do. And the animal lawyers bound together, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but, but only slightly, right? That, like, and filed a number of briefs that said, 
you have to just look at the plain text. Mm. It ends with the plain text, very, very Scalia-like. Um, yeah. And you should never consider why a legislator did it's something. Did. Yeah. Um, well, even if there's the, an unconstitutional Right, motive. even yeah. if there's a bad motive. And, yeah. and, and this is very bad for the animal rights. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. It's terrible for the, the moment. But As we didn't see that. We, yeah. Somehow we didn't see that, right? And like so many of our victories, yeah. this is what we were just saying, like, the, the, there, is a, there is a shared, you know, there's a reason that the powerless or the people who are lower on the yeah. power spectrum need law together. to help, yeah. and they need things like to be able to show the legislators are targeting us. They are targeting yeah. minorities. They are targeting um, animal rights groups. They are targeting activists. Right? We need yeah. to be able to use things like animus in the legislative history and bad yeah. motives. Um, but for some reason, well, not for some reason, because we wanted so badly to criminalize what the Santerias were doing, we were willing to sort of say this. Now, thankfully, Justice Kennedy uh, wrote an opinion that said, no, 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 this, no. Is, yeah. this history is unbelievable. This is as bad as it being facially discriminatory because you were yeah. targeting a minority. But it's so these it doesn't matter kind what of, the text of the statute it doesn't matter. says because the intention is pretty clear. Yeah. Right, but we And eventually wanted to deploy that for animals themselves. Exactly. Not just for the advocates who are being yes. targeted for our political ideologies. We want to deploy that for animals because it, animals yes. will always be in a position yes. where they're being targeted and marginalized by powerful people and industries and legislators. So with I, animus. I agree with you 100%. With, yeah, with <laughs> animus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With animus. I mean, yeah. that's one of the projects I'm thinking of down the line. It's yeah. just like how we treat animals. It's sort of like a, a theory of equal protection for animals, right? I mean, we, we treat animals. You could have a single animal, a pig, that in, in in one state is treated as a uh, a nuisance animal, right? Like in Texas, they mm-hmm. say, "Oh, there's these wild pigs." In another in another place, it might be a wild animal that that, that yeah. has protection. It's also a farmed animal. It could also be a pet. It could mm-hmm. also be a research animal. So you have this one species, mm-hmm. right? That is that is that is treated wildly differently across the law and it's because of like improper thinking about the animals it's it's Mm -hmm. not that we think that the pig that is um in the research lab is less intelligent Mm -hmm. it's not that it's it's sort of these and and i'm fascinated by the way that we are able to convince ourselves that the law should treat different species differently and if equal protection meant something right for animals it would mean some sort of equality of treatment for pigs um but yeah so i mean that's the sort of example i mean i think the egg egg laws um and their challenges represent uh, some of the best of what what animal lawyers can do, in that it's an opportunity to uh, kind of create a rising tide of civil rights that that other groups will benefit from, right? I mean, some of which we'll agree with, some of which we won't agree. But groups that want to do investigations mm-hmm, will benefit mm-hmm. from the work that we're doing and transparency and other things. And and so you know, I think that's something to be proud of. It as opposed to trying to go after the powerless, we were after the corporations, right? We were after mm-hmm. the state lawmakers who were saying, let's let's bury our abuse behind closed doors and criminal laws. Yeah, and this is not a hypothetical, these alliances you're demonstrating. No. And I could say this personally, even even having not really done the work. <laughs> I mean, I guess we did investigations, yeah. but having not done any of the legal work or strategizing around the ag laws, the Center for Constitutional Rights issued a, a huge report about the ag laws that featured a number of our investigations and showed people the footage from our investigations and the That's photos great. and distributed it to all their supporters and said, we're behind these activists because of the work we were doing on civil rights. Right. So all these right. civil rights supporters and all these supporters at a legendary civil rights organization in New York City are now talking about animals because exactly. we worked on a legal campaign in alignment with a broader strategy of social justice rather than exactly. just jumping on board right. the powerful, the corporations, the prosecutors, and, and trampling on the same people, whether it's Muslims, black people right. that are already being trampled on. I've heard a lot of stories, and maybe this is too insidery and too much gossip, and I definitely don't want to call anyone out. I've heard a lot of stories. Uh, I think, you know, I'm pretty good friends of Amy Meyer <laughs> and Jeremy Beckham about how hard it was for you all to get the support you needed to take that case. I wonder if you can describe that a little bit. And because yeah. so people understand that there's like an internal political dynamic 
for and I don't yeah. I don't know the truth of what yeah. led to that pressure or even whether that pressure existed because I've spoken yeah, to one other attorney expected. you can probably guess right. who the other attorney is about the pressure they faced to not represent right. grassroots act I think part of it was the same mentality you were talking about earlier yeah. that who are these people they're like these grassroots you right. know little radicals why would we support them but then there might have been part of it which was just you know this is not a good court I, I so th- I imagine there was like yeah, a combination I mean, of weird. I mean, there you was know. definitely strong, strong resistance to filing. And I think, you know, uh, at some point when I'm older um, and maybe not even bound by the, the ethics of lawyers, I'll write a long-form <laughs> okay. journalism piece on it. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's a fascinating – I mean, to me, it was one of those Did you just moments... admit you're going to break the attorney-client privilege? <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course, I would, of course I would never. <laughs> um, but, but the – you know, it was one of those – it was one of those things where – you know, in death penalty work, which you had mentioned, there's always there's a lot of ego and a lot of kind of like posturing, like who's the yeah, big death the penalty big voice at the moment. And you know, for me, it was always about the clients, but I didn't see that in animals, and it was refreshing. And it felt new. Huh. It felt like, and and then only in this moment, I said, "Wow, okay, there now is this <laughs> kind of like posturing and like no, like we'll do this." And so, yeah, I mean, what I, what I can say is, you think it was you know, that petty? Oh, I thought it was at least a little more strategic than that. Like. You know, this isn't the right defendant because they're who are these people? And you know, well, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> there were there were emails and memos exchanged um, between groups that were it was it was very lawyerly um, alleging. You know, for example, um, someone claimed that the the claim that we made that one in the Ninth Circuit and one in Utah was a frivolous claim that would result huh. in being sanctioned. sanctioned. Wow. And so that had to go then to, you know, ALDF was, was uh, one of the groups that was, that was um, funding and, and, you know, um, coordinating the litigation. That had to go to their board, right? You're being, you know, you're, there's been a, a alleged thing that shows, you yeah, know, that you're engaged the, the, in, you're engaged in uh, loyally yeah, misconduct and sanctional. Bringing the case. And, you know. That's crazy. Um, I didn't know that. And so, you know, I mean, it was cloaked in lawyerisms, but I don't think that they were particularly well-founded. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I never, I never think that there is necessarily um, bad faith. I'm sure that somebody, you know, thought that they had um, yeah. a better vision of how to protect the animals. But I think that there is this, yeah. I mean, there was, there was definitely, it was, it was very hard to get the cases off the ground. And I think in part that was um, unfortunately just like it showed, like you said, division in the movement and, yeah. and dysfunction. Um, and you know, I mean, if we hadn't challenged those laws the landscape would look a lot different than it Absolutely. did. And we kind of cur- turned the tide and the momentum against them. But, you know, I mean, I think that reasonable minds could say, well, look, there's just no way you can win in Utah. Um, I always thought, right, and I'm not somebody that I, I, always, I always felt good about our claims. And I always felt like this wasn't just for show. And I think that, I mean, like, you know, I mean, there's great research in Doug Najami and the rest, right? Like on winning by losing. And I think that, you know, it doesn't matter if Steve Wise never wins a case, like what he's doing is profoundly important. Absolutely. Um, so Absolutely. I, I'm not somebody that thinks that like every time you lose, it's um, bad. that, that, that yeah. you've, it's bad. But at the same time, I was mindful that a loss would bring more exposure to these laws, which would be good, but it would also help legislators see, oh, yeah. well, this we is what can we can do. This, this. this, is, this yeah. is this is the margin. So, you know, but I always felt strongly that we could win and that yeah. we should win. Um, and it's a question of, you know, legal realism. You're going before judges who probably ate bacon yep. in the morning. So what, you know, what do they think about these these animal yeah. plaintiffs? And that, that opinion's amazing. It's a great, Judge Murray's opinion? Yeah. And, and I think he's a Republican, no, no, no. so even more. Yeah, Shout you're out right, to you're all right. of you yeah, for Bush, getting a, a Republican judge yeah. to, 
to write it. I mean, go and read that opinion. Even if yeah. you're a layman, it's it's an amazing opinion because it's a opinion. Republican judge who's writing about the history of the animal rights movement and all the undercover investigations in an incredibly right. powerful way. Not yeah. just on the legal issues. Right. Just on the substantive underlying issues, understanding why totally. this is important for our society. So first I want to say, because, you know, I think you've criticized ALDF and sometimes, shout out to the ALDF board. Absolutely. ALDF for supporting oh, yeah. you in the face of that. Oh, they were. I mean, it's the, it, I mean that, without ALDF, they would not be, have been um, an initial round of ag gag challenges. I yeah. mean, they really like fought it. And then other groups came along and PETA was, was one of the, you know, initial, um, you know, organizations that was, they, they don't, they didn't care about the public pressure. Yeah. Shout um, out to Matthew Strugar and PETA. Too. Oh, absolutely. Strugar is amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. and P- Ingrid has always been someone who's bold and strong and, and willing to stand by grassroots activists. Um, but I also wanted to ask, have the people who said you were going to get sanctions and try to torpedo the case, have they apologized to you? Because I agree that you can make good faith mistakes right. that are really bad. And my view is when you make a good faith mistake, you try to own up, own up to it. And I wonder if any of these folks have come to you and said, oh, sorry, we kind of tried to torpedo this project that ended up being one of the most important projects in animal rights history. I don't, <laughs> I mean. And it wasn't I, even their project. I don't, think, it's like, I don't think I've ever heard an apology. I mean, you know, yeah. like, I mean, I, I think, I mean. Because let me just explain, because that's a really weird thing yes. for me to hear that another yes. lawyer would do. You know, it's just. Right. It, yeah, it's 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 not normal practice for you as an advocate, even as an activist, right. to go to that length, right? You know, to escalate something to the board of another organization to yeah. stop someone from doing something. That no, it's it's, it's got to be, I and, and I can seen. see you doing it only in the most extreme of cases, right? Where you really think this person's like going to murder someone, right, <laughs> something right, that's right, that right. level bad. I mean, my, my I, I try to be. I mean, I don't know that I always succeed in this, but I try to be rather fairly unassuming. I don't think that I have all the answers. I mean. You know, it's, it's like that's the odd thing about writing a book, right? Like everyone's yeah. like, "Oh, Justin thinks he knows everything." I, I, I mean, I'm more like inviting conversation and debate. Sure. Like I'm, I'm, I think that I'm wrong more often than I'm right. I mean, I think I'm most of what I said in the book is right, but mm-hmm. I, you know, it's it's, it's about conversation. It and, is. Um, and so, you know, when you put yourself out there, either with a legal brief or a legal theory or a book, it's out there and people can criticize. But I'm, I'm not the sort of person that then says, "See, I told you." Yeah. Uh, and so, I haven't had a lot of apologies. But you know, to their credit, I, I will say. Um, People who have, were were you know kind of uh, gumming up the the process um, have sent emails being like oh congrats like that kind okay. of you know one liners yeah. and 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 I think that's that's I mean I expect uh, nothing more and and in the organizations that did yeah I mean the Matthew Strugars the Matthew Liebmans um, ALDF PETA uh, others I mean you know this is you know now it's it's kind of like something that, that groups can fundraise off of it's it's yeah, popular good. and you know great groups like you know public justice are taking it and they get mm-hmm, lots of money mm-hmm. uh supported but at the at the initial stage nobody wanted to touch these cases right yeah. it was it was it was kind of one of these non-mainstream it was like oh this is this mm-hmm. is dangerous it's activisty it mm-hmm. kind of stinks of people trespassing yeah um you people know broke I mean, the so, law. somebody yeah. in one of the organizations told me you know like I just I don't get this whole egg gag thing. I mean, why are we bothered by? It? I mean, those people are shady, you know. I mean, and that was yeah. somebody that was high up in in an wow. organization. Um, but you know, I mean, so so I'm happy with where it's went. I will also say, I mean, in addition to sort of legal memos, um, yeah. I mean, at one point, I had to retain an ethics lawyer because wow. when it, when it blew up, uh, somebody essentially claimed that me continuing to bring the case was a was an ethics violation. They tried Oof. so hard to stop the case, and so then. Um, um, yeah, we, we retained an ethics lawyer, and the ethics lawyer sort of said, "Like, come on, you're out of your mind. Like, what are you talking yeah. about?" But you know, like it was, it was, um, it was, it was pretty uh, intense efforts to stop the litigation. Yeah, that's disappointing. 
<laughs> well, hopefully we've all learned something from it, including some of the folks who were adversaries of yours in this context. Absolutely. And, and not just about the substantive issue. I mean, obviously, you're proven right. correct mm-hmm. about the substantive legal issue. We actually do have legitimate constitutional claims to challenge the ag-ag laws, but also about movement dynamics. Because I think one of the things that's really important, and I love the way you put it, that I'm just trying to start conversations. And one of the things I loved about you is you're definitely in a lot of elite circles. You went to Harvard, you're a professor at the University of Denver. You've worked with ALDF, which is the most prominent yeah. animal law organization in the United States. But you're really willing to talk to ratty people like me. I mean, I have some pedigree too. So I'm, I'm not as ratty as some no. people. But, but in, and not only that, but I think you really believe in it. You oh, believe yeah. that there's a lot we can learn from everyone. Um, and I think that's yeah. a really important just principle for us to value in this movement and in human society. That Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone I, has something to teach us. That's you know? the, I mean, I, I, I think that's really well said. And I, I tell all of my animal law students, I mean, I think you're going to the Love and Arms Sanctuary tomorrow. Love, Love and Arms Sanctuary. Yeah. I tell my students, like, figure out the things in this semester where you're going to do something that's, that's intellectually challenging for you. Like, you think, I'm not quite sure that this is um, the part of animal law I, I like. Do something that is just fun for you. Yeah. And then do something that is practical in the community. Like, go and you know, volunteer at a sanctuary. Go and help an activist who is um, being told they can't you know, uh, hold a sign in front of this place. Like, do something that is like, really on the ground. And to me, like, we, we lose ourselves if we're not like, yeah, visiting an animal, reminding ourselves what it's about, do, painting a barn, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing some of that stuff that is the, the nuts and bolts of it. And, and I think that that keeps the, the, the students grounded. And it's certainly something that, I mean, I've, if I'm not you know, talking to people, yeah, I mean, some of my colleagues are like, who is that person coming into your office? You know, and I'm like, oh, you know, he's an <laughs> activist. And I mean, like, if, I, if I'm not talking to some of those people, I feel like I'm, I'm disconnected, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. one of the things, like I said, I think it's a paradox and a real problem with animal lawyers and well-intentioned animal lawyers that they are terrified of what comes from activists, right? Yeah. Because it seems radical. It seems too edgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't even want to, like, use the video to bring it to their prosecutor friends who they're mm-hmm. paying lots of money to have relationships with, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're funding their conference, but they don't want to bring that video or pressure them for a corporate prosecution because it comes from somebody that's a little edgy and, and you know, and, you know, I mean, that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that's I've always, I mean, that's what I've always loved about the ACLU, the ACLU of Colorado, is you know, the, the, the director, the legal director, he always talks about how they're focused on um, the people that society thinks of as uh, smelly and, and, and crunchy. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, they don't want them on their sidewalks. They want to they mm-hmm. not have mm-hmm. to see them. They don't want them camping. And I think that, uh, you know, any lawyer who sort of thinks that they are representing a civil rights cause and doesn't have any time for the activists of whatever stripe yeah. is totally lost their way. Yeah. The ACLU is a great organization. Great organization. I, I, I mean, and I know there have been some critiques of the ACLU recently, but David Cole's a really good guy. Brilliant. And he wrote an amazing book. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's vegetarian. I actually sat next to him at a wedding that might be and right. had a long conversation about this, but he read Jonathan Safran. Maybe yeah. Sharing too eating, much of his personal. Eating animals. Huh? Yeah. He read Jonathan Safran's Borders book and he's ex- extremely receptive. And I had some conversations with him over the years. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. yeah he's, so he's, he's a great guy. And, and yeah. Well, I think they've come a long ways too, right? I mean, those, those are the, 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 the next generation of ACLU lawyers that are, that are younger in the ranks are really sympathetic to the hostility and the discrimination against people who are doing animal rights work. They, they see it. Whereas, you know, Will Potter and others documented that a generation ago, the ACLU was like animal people. Yeah. Like those, yeah. those aren't, they, they don't need our time. Um, and I think, that, I think that's changed. And it, they've it been really, really hospitable. Yeah. I mean, honestly, partly due to the work. Like people no, I think that's right. I think they, winning they these cases, see. getting yeah. this sort of attention you've gotten 
both in the legal community and more broadly in mainstream media. The New York right. Times right. has had op-eds about yep. the ag-gag laws, exactly. and that's all because you right. know, activists like work. Justin are doing this work. For these who don't know, David Cole is the legal director that's of the right. ACLU, so I, I don't think I explained that. And he's, he's a really good guy. Um, so we've been talking for two, almost two and a half hours, I think, or a little over two hours. It's a long time. But I want to end. I, I actually usually forget to ask um, my guests this, but do you have any final suggestions or advice for for people who want to change the world, or even want to change themselves in some fundamental way? Because you've obviously gone through a pretty dramatic personal change that right. I didn't even know about. I mean, I knew about right. the Harvard Law School professor doing this weird animal thing. I didn't know about the, mm-hmm. the Air Force Academy thing. Or about social change. I mean, what are, what are the things that, yeah. the lessons that you think you've learned that are you'd want to pass along to someone else who's thinking about change? I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, I have like a, a sticky note and I, that, that asks a, ver, a version of that question in huh. my nightstand, which just sort of like, what do we do to, to, to change, change the, world? the world? And, you know, I don't know. I have different thoughts about it almost every day when I'm in the shower. But I mean, one of the things that has become clear to me over time, and I, I used this word earlier, um, idealistic. I mean, people, I, I think one of the critiques of my book and my work uh, is that it's idealistic. And I think we should never give up on idealism. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's I think it's utopian to imagine that we're getting something good from the criminal system. People often say, "Well, that would be great if we could if we could help animals and not just be you know focused on the criminal." But that's that's idealistic. But I, I'm okay being idealistic and saying like I think it's idealistic in a bad way. Like I think it's it's sort of anti-utopian to imagine that we're just going to keep punishing and felonies and you know over policing and suddenly animals are going to emerge right, yeah. in a, in a better position. Like to me, like. That's, that's that's naive pragmatic. and idealistic <laughs> yeah. too. But yeah, like, everyone accuses me of being naive and you know, um, you know, naive, overly idealistic, anthropocentric. I mean, live your life like you said. Tell, speak. Of what what is what is it that makes you what what will help animals? What can you yeah. do to help animals? And what does that what does that look like? And then how do you do it? Because I really think if people reflect mm-hmm. on that, they're not going to say, "Oh, it's by bashing that person who happened yeah. to hurt a cat." It's probably some reflections on the fact that you know what did it say? I think this was in the Guardian this week, right? That uh, twenty of the largest factory farming firms in the world contribute more greenhouse gases than you know most European countries, Germany yeah. and England. I mean. Like, what would we do if we really wanted to make structural systemic change? And I think the answer is, like I said, I think for each person, that answer might be different. But I doubt that any of us are going to say, I think it would probably be more prosecutions of this. Like, I don't think that's what we're going to find. So, like, search for true solutions. And I don't have the answer. I mean, mean, that is a fair critique. And I take it all day long from all sides, right? I mean, people will say to me, but Justin, you've launched this critique, but... You don't have a solution, like, mm-hmm. and I say you're right. It's so easy for me to be in the ivory tower and critique. Like I'm not fundraising. I'm not, you know. So fair enough. But all I would say in response is, I'm not convinced that you really see changes for animals yeah. that you expect, right? Yeah. Like you're getting the money, you're doing the things, but I don't think it's I don't think it's changing the hearts and minds. I don't think the world is better for animals than it was before Colorado had an, an aggravated felony offense, right? Yeah. I mean, like. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I just tell people like, try to be true to yourself, figure out what it is that, that motivates you to care about some sort of social change and then do it. And don't believe the, the narratives on Twitter or the mass media or whatever. I mean, they're convincing us that war or punishment or whatever is good. Like, what, what do you think? Do you yeah. think that like the punishment or the war is going to improve the world for animals? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what mm-hmm. do you think? Like what would, right? And then, and then, like I said, like every, every great action is started with some, you know, somebody just doing something like starting an organization like you did, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and that's why. I've always enjoyed talking and thinking about your work, Wayne. It's just like the ability to put 
like your passion to work is really inspiring. And that's why I went to law students here. I mean, I mean, people, you know, you're literally putting yourself at risk of going to prison. And um, everyone that knows you, as I'll say tonight in my introduction of you, knows that you could have made it as a, as a professor, as a law professor, as a, you know, any, any variety of type of professors. And you put the animals first. I mean, some of us, for selfish reasons, maybe for good reasons, if we wanted to be protective, could say, um, well, that's not for me. I, you know, I'm glad he's doing it, but I can't. But nobody should just be turning their back and saying, okay, this is, this is you know, that person's too radical. We have, we have to sort of open our minds to the possibility that we don't understand everything, right? And a student actually said something really apt, and I'll, I'll end here. When you spoke to my class at Harvard Law School, after you spoke, somebody said, you know, this is just, this is, this is so radical. I, I just, you know, I, I, I can't believe that this is, you know, what you brought in law school. Hmm. And another student, you know, said, and she really convinced the whole class. I, I, I mean, I wish I had a recording of what she said, but she said, you know, that's so, um, basically she said, this, it, it, it's so egotistical for you to say that because how would you know? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know what's going to work? Right. Yeah. Like for you to judge this. Right. Like, like we just don't know what is going to work and what's yeah. not going to work. Um, and so I'm I mean, I'm humble. Like you show me something works. Let's do more of that. You show me something is 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 not producing results. Let's do a little less of that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be a dynamic process. Um, and so I guess that's that's a long winded answer. to your No, but, but I think you're right about leading with your idealism in your heart that be humble for sure and try mm-hmm. different things, but do the things that feel true to you. And, yeah. and I think that's crucial. And Ezra Klein had this guy, Rutger Bregman, on yeah. his show recently. Did you I didn't listen, listen to that to podcast? It, I know, no, I, so I, I, he wrote a book about utopias and how important it is to have utopian thinking, even for pragmatic gains. Right. That if you don't have that long-term yeah. vision to infuse everything you're doing with purpose and to give you a sense of where you're going, like what, yes. I mean, if, I don't even know what the long-term right. vision is. How do I know what my next step is? Totally. And, and it's interesting. Rutger Bregman is mostly known as a critic of economic inequality. and. Mm-hmm. And, and racial inequality in the context, especially of the global poor, you know, yes. the fact that where you're born is going to determine your fate yes. far more than anything else in this world. It's terrible that yeah. you're born in sub-Saharan Africa right. or some places in South Asia. I don't care how smart, how hardworking you are. You're fucked. Yeah. You're just fucked. It's just your life is going to be miserable. But it was really interesting. Rickard Bregman, when he said, when I think of a, a kinder world, the number one I think about, there, there are two issues that I think about that future generations will look back on our society and say, can't believe we did these things. And and there's so much of a better world we could have reached. And the first is open borders. He thinks, mm-hmm. you know, it shouldn't matter where you were born, what race you are. We should all just be part of one community. And that's not, doesn't seem that extreme when you imagine it that way. When you start from the vision and not the, where we are yeah. today. But the second thing he said yeah. was the treatment of animals. And I was shocked because I didn't even know he was an animal supporter. I'm pretty sure he's not vegetarian. But, wow. and a lot of that, and I think wow. what, because Rutger was able to see that, not because he personally has done much for animals and <laughs> he personally is even a vegetarian, but because he's an idealist. Yes. Because he doesn't make all the excuses and accept all the atrocities and just look at the footage and say, well, but that's the way the world's got to be. He doesn't say those things. He is an idealist and a utopian. He understands the importance of that. And that's why he was able to see a future where we treat every animal on this earth. I don't care whether you're a dog in a lab, a dog in a fighting ring, or a pig in a factory farm. Every animal with kindness. Yeah. And who could argue with that? That is a beautiful vision. So let's go make it. Let's do it. And you're doing Perfect. it. So thank, thank you so much thank for the support, you. but I will say it takes a village and your work has been transformative. I think people look back at this history in the animal rights movement and say, these are some of the most important legal cases, not just in animal rights history, but in the history of legal justice. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the risk you've taken. And, and let's talk yeah. again sometime after Definitely. your research is published. Absolutely. Okay? Thanks so much. Thanks, Appreciate Justin. It. 
I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Justin's a great guy. He's doing really important work. And, and please do check out his books. I want to thank Ronnie Rose, uh, the co-producer of this podcast, and, and also a team of volunteers that's been helping out, including Crystal Heath, who has been helping out with audio, Shalola Fakis, who's done a lot of the transcripts, Julie Waldrip and Louis Bernier, who've helped out in various ways, and frankly, all of you who are listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Thanks so much.